Hello, my fellow Westorians. It is another Sunday. With me, as always, is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. Though lately, I'm realizing that I should probably put some word in there about themes, because we have been really hammering on the themes that come in small bunches or perhaps large bunches, depending. It varies. But there's been a lot of really notable ones lately, and we're going to be talking about a few more of them today. So sit back and get ready to enjoy that. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Whether you are a new patron or been around for a while or considering being one, we certainly appreciate it. It enables us to keep coming back just about every week doing this, having lots of fun while we do so. If you haven't seen it yet, check out the Illustrated A Clash of Kings book. It is really beautiful. A lot of the artwork from that book has been Maybe not a lot of it, but some of the artwork from that book, because there's just so much, has been posted in our Facebook group as uh, lead-ins to the individual chapters that we're uh, doing each week. So if that hasn't encouraged you to get it, well... It was the perfect time for it to be released. What's that? It was just the perfect time for it to be, to, for it to be released. <laughs> we, we couldn't have planned it better, <laughs> even though we didn't plan it. It just kind of worked out. <laughs> so you can, uh, you can buy it through our website. It'll give us a little bit of support if you do so. It won't cost you any more. So maybe that's better than buying it through other means. That's your call, but we would appreciate it if you used our links. And another quick announcement. Ashea is going to be on the next Radio Westeros quiz episode, which is based on the Master, Mason, Master, Maester Crescent prologue, which is, as we've pointed out here, the second longest chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. So you've already recorded that, though, haven't you? Yeah, we have recorded it. And if you're watching slash listening to this, you've read Maester Cresson pretty recently. So go listen to that and see how well you do. Right on. Yeah. It was quite fun. difficult. <laughs> I bet. I bet. You read me. You told me one of the questions and I was like, um. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, y'all should definitely check that out. And of course, I'm even wearing a Radio Western shirt today. It mentions Ashai. And I wanted something that mentioned, mentioned Ashai because, well... Today, we have Daenerys three, the one where Car- uh, Car- Zaro, Caro, <laughs> Zaro tries to marry a dragon, a.k.a. Quaith, Shadowlands travel agent. Then we have Tyrion nine. The gang thinks Marcella is a riot, a.k.a. the one with King Bread. Then Davos two, the one where Sir Courtney challenges Stannis to a duel, a.k.a. Shadow Baby two, Electric Boogaloo. John five. The gang meets Corrin, a.k.a. Notorious Halfman, ready to die. Tyrion 10, the gang plans Shay's disguise, a.k.a. the one where Varus dreams of the voice. And finally, Catelyn 6, the one where winning is losing, a.k.a. the gang fights the Battle of Stone Mill. Of all those, I sometimes pick one of the batch of chapters that I think is the most important. Occasionally, I've forgotten, but also occasionally, I just haven't because it's too difficult. I, I can't decide which is the most important. I feel like I spent the most time writing about Davos 2 this, on this one, and, and with quite a lot for Daenerys 3, maybe a surprising amount, depending on how you view that chapter. Um, So we'll see, though. We'll see how it goes, as usual. I mentioned some themes, and in this case, the themes are going to be... the One major theme here is going to be the awakening of old powers with Quaith and the dragons and warlocks, Corrin and Jon, Varys discussing his past, Mel's second shadow baby, which we actually see on screen happening instead of just the point of murder. Uh, Of course, Bran's chapters have had an awful lot of this with more to come, though. Not today. No brand chapter today. Same Arya, uh, who also doesn't have a chapter today, but she's quickly uh, describing her 
or having quickly described wolf dreams, rather. And of course, the Faceless Man stuff is just starting to happen for her. Even Tyrion is going to get a little taste of this with the enhanced wildfire pretty soon. So his uh, arc is among the least magical. And only like Sansa and Theon are not wrapped up in this as far as the magical supernatural goes. And Catelyn, I guess she's moved away from it. She was in the midst of it when she was at Renly and Stannis' camp, but now she's back at Riverrun. She's kind of away from the magic, at least for now, until she gets right back into it when she, you know, comes back from the dead. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty magical. <laughs> All right, let's go to it. Daenerys three, the one where Zaro tries to marry a dragon, a.k.a. Quaith, Shadowlands travel agent. In line with the pride theme that we saw in the previous batch of chapters is Karth itself and Danny herself. The Karthine are huge on ancestry and propriety and ceremony. It's been built up over apparently thousands of years. Some of their customs, though, she's a little too proud to adopt, even though she's pretty good at adopting and adapting. She just refuses to weep, right? That's one she, she won't do. Uh, she doesn't mind exposing one breast. That's no big deal to her. But weeping, that's a pride thing, and she's just not willing to do that. Here's the opening quote. The drapes kept out the dust and heat of the streets, but they could not keep out disappointment. Yeah, she asks a lot of people for help, and they all say no. Other than, you know, Zaro and the, the warlocks. But it's amazing that she's even asking. It's quite a thing to ask. You're like, hey, can you lend me money to invade a kingdom? I mean, that's a big thing to ask. So you got to just get a sense of, of her as a person thinking that uh, she deserves all this and it's worthwhile. So she's disappointed at, at not getting something that's a pretty big ask. <laughs> now, the Pureborn, who are the basically the rulers of Kartha, that's, you know, there's multiple factions that are sort of in charge. They're nominally in charge, and they all descend from the ancient kings and queens of Karth. They look at her a bit like the Red Keep looks at Jalabar Joe. Here is uh, what, we, what it said in A Dance with Dragons, the spurned suitor. The rest of Marine might see him as an amusing curiosity like the exiled Summer Islander King Robert used to keep at King's Landing. But the Queen had always spoken to him gently. So that's Quentin, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so there, that's, it's kind of a, a third example of this where, the, especially Dario, is like laughs in Quentin's face, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so she's insulted by this, these rejections, but it's actually a good thing because if they saw her as a threat, they would kill her, as is apparently a regular enough thing. Quote, the pureborn were notorious for offering poisoned wine to those they thought dangerous, but they had not given Danny so much as a cup of water. They never saw me for a queen, she thought bitterly. I was only an afternoon's amusement, a horse girl with a curious pet. And we hear how often their assassinations work when they're not using poisoned wine or something like poison. And it's the sorrowful men. That's a mention there that it's going to come up pretty big because a sorrowful man is going to try to kill her in the fifth chapter of this book, uh, which is her final chapter of this book. And of course, it's going to be Barristan who saves her from that. And that's a big part of how he wins uh, his way into her service, along with our, one of our favorites, good old strong Belwas. It strikes me that Zaro Zoandaxis is a bit like Littlefinger. He's really, really overly polite. Uh, he's good with words, although Littlefinger is, you know, a lot snarkier, <laughs> more sarcastic. But he, they also really pay a lot of attention to how they dress. Seemingly helpful, especially with navigating power politics and making money, but has a serious ulterior motive involving marriage. And in both cases, you know, Sansa and uh, Daenerys are both similar age. 
And I imagine, I don't know how old Zaro is, but I kind of figure he's near the age of Zaro. He's, I mean, near the age of Littlefinger. He's not, he doesn't seem old. But of course, in real, uh, in reality, Zaro is not actually into, doesn't seem like he's into girls at all. It seems like he's into men, especially boys. So he's a little creepy or a lot creepy. Uh, she can't help see some comparisons to living with Zara versus living with Illyrio. And that is a great point, something that they discuss. Quote, My brother and I were guests in Illyrio's manse for half a year. If he meant to sell us, he could have done it then. He did sell you, Sir Jorah said, to call Drogo. Danny flushed. He had the truth of it, but she did not like the sharpness with which he put it. So it's it's a tough but fair point by Jorah. And well, yeah, she doesn't realize how much has changed. Now, nor has Jorah admitted it, at least not that he'd admit. A lot has changed in their circumstances since Illyrio sold her to Khal Drogo. He, he looks at her a lot differently now. He now sees her as someone important. Before, she was just Viserys' sister, maybe part of the pawn, you know. But now she's, he's still using her as a pawn. But, mm, well, if we're using the chess metaphor, he's still a game player and she's a queen. She's a much more important piece. The birth of the dragons changed everything, but also her developing into who she is. Anyway, Jorah isn't wrong about that point. That's part of this. So like Danny says, he just, she just doesn't like how he said it, but she has to admit it's accurate. And, but uh, Jorah wants to go east, mostly to have her for himself, it would seem. Though recall, he still sends Varus a message from Karth. This is part of why he advises her to leave, probably. He's like, well, I just told them where you are, so we need to be on our way <laughs> because I, am, I just outed you. Now, it'll take a while for them to get this message, but we need to be on our way at least some, some point here. So as it usually is with Jorah, he's useful even while being shady. It's like a mix of both. And there's this vast interplay this web of different characters who are all trying to manipulate Daenerys. You got Zaro and the Warlocks, you got Illyrio and Varys, and even Jorah. So sad to say, but as bad as Jorah is, he is definitely the least dangerous because at least, he's at least willing to die for her. Like out of all the ones I named, none of them are. That is though, of the people with ambition. Her blood riders have no such ambition. They would die for her and are not trying to manipulate her. Their loyalty is absolute and iron. And really just unquestionable. It's a, it comes from a religious, cultural space that no one around them is ever really going to challenge, I can't imagine. It's really, really difficult to think that Ricaro or J- Jogo or Ego would ever turn on Danny at all. So anyway, it's, I'm repeating myself. I've said this before, but it's a real shame that those characters weren't in the show. Her blood riders, dang, it's a, it's a real shame. It makes me wonder if they'll die uh, at some point later in her arc to increase her building feelings of isolation, assuming that's how it goes. But it's also fair to say they are not as useful whatsoever in giving Danny advice about Westeros. Love him or hate him, or somewhere in between, Jorah is her only link to Westeros for only a couple more chapters, though. Whitebeard's a coming. <laughs> and he can tell her all the things Jorah can uh, without his own ambitions mixed in, or at least less of that. A lot less of that. An important line here pointed out by Flick user Archmaester Rennie that I agree seems rather foreshadowy is also a good example of the kind of valuable advice Danny give, or Jorah gives Danny pretty often. Quote, swords have their uses, Sir Jorah admitted, but you will not win your father's throne with sweepings from the free cities. Nothing knits a broken realm together so quick as an invading army on its soil. Though to be fair and clear, Barristan will absolutely do a better job in this role than, than Sir Jorah. But it's not just the ambitious people around her trying to pull her strings. There's the pull of temptation. 
the call of ease, quote, Let this be your kingdom, most exquisite of queens, and let me be your king. I will give you a throne of gold if you like. When Karth begins to fall, we can journey round Yiti and search for the dreaming city of the poets to sip the wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull. What beautiful sen- sentiment until the end there. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, dead man. Wait, what? <laughs> Nina makes a good point in our Facebook group in regards to the 1,000 jeweled knight figurines that Zaro gives her in this chapter, or at least refers to that he had already given to her. It represents her entire experience in Karth. There's ample opportunities for Danny to lose herself in the pleasures and splendor offered to her. But Danny is not interested in pleasures and splendor and is not corrupted into giving up her goals. We could point out that Zaro is kind of lying here though because he wants to claim one of her dragons and that's probably what he means by them being king and queen i mean that is how they would become king and queen of karth is it's not just going to be handed to them he's not going to marry her and people are going to nominate them for that there's an implication of taking over the city in that even though he doesn't mention it so he's basically seeing the possibility of overthrowing the pureborn via dragons in the long term but still that's not the reason danny rejects him yeah Jorah reveals the Carthine marriage custom that enables that would enable Zaro to take one of her dragons. But even to that point, she hadn't taken the marriage offer very seriously. So yeah, Jorah kind of seals the deal by revealing that information. But Danny probably wasn't going to marry Zaro anyway. She thinks the comet led her to Karth for a reason. She thinks she's a child of destiny. But clearly she doesn't think settling down is that reason. That's not her destiny. Go to Karth. Live out all your days in luxury. Yeah, that's not what the prophecies are saying. So, and since nothing else is working out, all these other avenues are turning up dead ends or worse, she's bribing people and it's not getting her anywhere. So she decides it's time for the warlocks. Well, Zaro, he's not so happy about that. His reaction here is, it's, well, it's a bit hypocritical, but it's still pretty much on point. Quote, The merchant prince sat up sharply. Hyatt Pri has blue lips, and it is truly said that blue lips speak only lies. Heed the wisdom of one who loves you. Warlocks are bitter creatures who eat dust and drink of shadows. They will give you naught. They have naught to give. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty, pretty hard to argue with. But if we're really trying to argue against that, we would say the vision she will, she'll certainly have some value out of those visions. So some is not not. <laughs> but given that they try to... um. I don't know, drain her essence or whatever it was they were trying to do there. Zaro is indeed right for the most part. But still, he's only trying to protect her because he wants those dragons or a dragon for himself. So let's not pretend he's being a good guy here. Still, still, <laughs> the side effect of Danny going to the House of the Undying in her next chapter is that it also kicks off the Warlock's Revenge, which in turn enables Euron. So, oops. In many ways, really... But in Dragonbinder, the horn especially, it may turn out to be the biggest part of all of this. And this is a reminder that the, these warlocks, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but at some point they're just going to show up with that horn. And where did they get that? The point being, Karth is this ancient, powerful city full of wonders, as it says. And a lot of these wonders are magical. And a lot of these types of normal, quote unquote, normal magic things like the fire ladder that we see in this chapter are nothing that we would ever see in Westeros. Like this is a street magician. He's not some powerful lord using magic and whole, having lots of slaves and followers. This is some dude using magic on the street to steal, 
you know, to use uh, his cut purses to steal money. That's how he makes his living. And he can do real magic. That is very, very different than Westeros, right? People like in Westeros kind of downplay the existence of magic at all. You know, like that's hugely different. It just gives you an idea of what a vastly different type of place Karth is. It's much older than most places in Westeros and has had a more distinct existence, more recorded and more uh, uninterrupted. And that's not a good thing. It isn't all bad, but it's a lot of, there's a lot of bad in that. So let's talk about Quaithe, who is there when we see that fire ladder scene. She's different in that she, unlike everyone else, including Jorah, has a different agenda. If that's even the right word. Quote. You must leave this city soon, Daenerys Targaryen, or you will never be permitted to leave it at all. Right. Everyone else wants her to stay or want something from her. But Quaith seems to maybe, at least maybe, be looking out for her. For, we don't know why. That's why I say maybe because her motives are so unclear. But at least it seems like she's given pretty good advice. She could just be the travel agent that you referred to her as <laughs> in the title for this, for this uh, chapter. She wants to collect you, collect all, the, all this uh, per- percentage like of all the revenue that Danny yeah. gets for all the gifts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so Quaid says a lot of interesting things. Uh, the scene definitely deserves um, some extra looking. The bizarre scene, uh, not bizarre, but bizarre. It's, one thing that is interesting is, if she, yeah, she tries to get, or Quaid tries to get Danny to go to Ashai. So let's get a bit meta here, because George originally intended for Danny to go to Ashai, as we know and have discussed prior. But Clearly, he didn't have that intent by the time he wrote this book, or at least this chapter, because two chapters from now, he she sails west in the opposite direction of Ashai. So it doesn't seem like at this, this, this chapter, she's never really seriously considering going to Ashai. Yet, Quaith and Jorah, at some point, Jorah has backed off on that, it seems, but uh, Quaith is still in, pushing that line and, and says that truth is what she'll find there. Well, if George intends her to find that truth elsewhere, well, it, it would be from Marwyn, I guess. Or maybe he'll discommunicate it to the reader via Melisandre. Or maybe Melisandre and Danny will meet up eventually and, and what she'll is explain the, it then. What is the truth, though, even? Yeah, I really don't know. It's uh, more prophecies, maybe? Yeah, because I mean... Knowledge of dragons? Because, I mean, you can't help but think about the show, to be honest. And I don't know that I think Danny really learned a truth. I agree. She didn't. They kind of hinted there might be some truths like we had Kinvar and these other red priests that had brief roles where they seemed like it was building to something and it built to something but it didn't have much to do with anything to do with Danny's past or you know it didn't build to anything uh, relating to this yeah like what is it is it something about the ancestors she saw in her dreams Yeah, Um, something about the future about the past about something about the the past representing what's coming in the future like history repeating itself like she's heading down a path her ancestors did i don't know there's a lot of cool ideas i mean the ancestors he saw in those dreams are perhaps even more ancient than valyria itself so that's really you know compelling to think about but it's also not something we have a lot of information on I think it has something to do with destiny, maybe. There's just so many possibilities. It's really neat. But it's definitely one that the show, like you said, doesn't, it does not give us any answers. <laughs> Trigo wants to point out that uh, Jogo's familiarity with Danny, how he you know, picks her up and puts his hand around her waist. And it's, it's not even a little sexual. It's just a different culture. Kingsguard cannot touch the king or queen like that. But a blood rider, they can. Now, this is a little unusual because a blood rider to a woman is, is a new thing for the Dothraki. So 
while I'm saying, pointing to these cultural differences, we also have to realize that this is sort of unprecedented. But in Karth and a lot of these Eastern societies, the highest of the high would never show familiarity with a subordinate in public and probably not even in private, not like touching and sitting so close like that. That doesn't seem like uh, something that the Karthine would be, would be down for with all their rigid cultural mores and, and highly developed over eons. But hey, it's okay if, you know, all your friends can check out your wife. <laughs> yeah, everyone gets to see one breast. <laughs> and the, meanwhile, the Dithraki are much, much younger culture, vastly younger than the Carthine. And while Daenerys is brought up amongst the Dithraki, quite a lot of her upbringing is, is shaped by that. Uh, the Carthine perhaps are a reflection of her ancient past that her ancestors came from, some sort of echoing of her own history. And so there's a, a crossing here, maybe a, a cultural estuary where she's part old blood, but part this newish Dothraki culture. And she's just kind of unique in that she represents both parts of that. And like I said, though, she comes from very old blood. She's not of the old guard, so to speak, meaning her lineage does not define her attitudes, at least not all of them. Like her ancestors and the Carthine too, were and are slavers. They considered themselves high above others, like the Valentines who literally don't touch the ground for a year if they're elected triarch. Like, talk about a, a, a strange uh, cultural you know, facet there. Compared to that to Danny, so frequently going amidst her people, allowing them to touch her. Indeed, the comet, it all comes back to the comet because Danny mentions it here. It's, it's a sign of change. Danny is old blood, new tood, new attitude. But even this new attitude is bloody. It's still fire and blood, even though it's a different kind of fire and blood. It's still part of her heritage, especially because dragons are just so damn destructive. And there are constant signs of, and warnings of this. The chapter has one of these at the end, one of the subtler ones, quote, Rhaegal and Viserion were fighting over a scrap of meat, buffeting each other with their wings as smoke hissed from their nostrils. That's not playing, right? Dragons don't play just like they don't plant trees. And Danny recognizes this. She thinks, I need to figure out how to train these guys or they're going to wreck cities. <laughs> so she's aware of this. They bond with their mother, but not with each other. And if their respective writers, whoever those turn out to be later, decide they want to fight each other, the dragons aren't going to be like, oh, I have loyalty towards my brother. I'm not going to fight him. No, they'll go right to it. So <sighs> keep that in mind. <laughs> dragons are, uh, let's not lose sight of what they really are. Daenerys showing off her skills of diplomacy and merging with her with all these different cultures is really cool. Joe also takes note of this and he, he points out that, yeah, she's trying, but it doesn't fully work. But it is still a good mark of, of her ability to do so. This adaptation, even though it's occasionally tinged with pride. And she also, of course, realizes that they want the dragon. That's what people are truly interested in, not her. At first, she when she got to the city, they're all yell, oh, mother dragons, mother dragons. But really, it's the dragon part of that that people care about, not the mother of part. She kind of thinks of herself as a circus act. And well, maybe she's exaggerating a little bit, but she's, there's definitely some truth to that. Now, rereaders obviously know how fake Karth truly is, but it, it, it's, of course, easier to see that the second time through. Uh, Joe points out the, the bribes that just get pocketed, the boredom and general laziness that hangs in the air. People are just so rich, they, you know, they can just not care about a lot of things or just ignore things that are beneath them. Like the pureborn just they kind of ignore Danny. That's kind of, kind of wild, really, if you think about it. Karth is basically a big mirage, which is perfect because it's in the desert. 
That's a really good take from Joe there. I think I think that's great, especially if you include the House of the Undying and all the kind of mirage half truths of those visions. Joe wants to know if this crown here is uh, a Targaryen crown or, or patterned after a Targaryen crown. And I highly encourage y'all to check out our Facebook chats on this because Nina has some great thoughts on on that crown. Bit too lengthy for me to get into here, but I uh, highly recommend it if you want to check it out. Stuff stuff about Queen Alessandra's crown. I see more of uh, Hisdar in Zara than on previous rereads. Both want to use Daenerys, marry Daenerys, take Daenerys as dragons, eh, but neither really are very interested in her personally. So this is uh, it's one of George's themes, overarching themes for all the books, is that wherever people go, the Game of Thrones is being played. No matter what culture you go to, no matter what city, no matter where in the world, there are going to be similar types of people that have similar types of ambitions. Daenerys' dragons are going to incite that kind of lust wherever she goes. And we see that now. We see that later. So if Renly and Jockin aren't clue enough about magic being a real force again, we get like magic in the street. And Quaith tells us that that's real magic. It's not a trick because that's actually stated, right? Jogo or one of them says, a fine trick. And Quaith is like, nah, not a trick. <laughs> it is not a trick. Be real. So here's another quote. Khaleesi, do you see the girl in the felt hat there behind the fat priest? She is a... Cut purse, finished Danny. She was no pampered lady, blind to such things. She had seen cut purses aplenty in the streets of the free cities during the years she'd spent with her brother, running from the usurper's hired knives. And Danny takes some pride in this uh, for having a better, uh, more level cultural view, as in she, she knows what it's like to be chased. Like the, the, basically the things Vara says to Kevin at the end of A Dance of Dragons is dying. He's, all the things that make a good king, you know, having felt genuine fear, knowing what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and no, not being pampered all your life. Well, yeah, Danny, I mean, the things we've been talking about with Bran and Arya. Yeah, absolutely. And Bran and Arya aren't being pampered, though. That's interesting. Like, you're totally right, but Danny is actually resisting temptations while also dealing with this. So that's, that's true. really neat. Yeah. Yeah. So, but also relating to that quote, there were no hired knives. Let me remind you, that never happened until the wine cellar. So the time she's referring to, when she was younger, running from uh, with, with her brother, there were no hired knives. Only later. And probably only that one time. Here's another interesting little quote that we just can't help but talk about because it gets into some minor world building. It is easier to milk the stone cow of Pharos than to wring gold from the pureborn. Yeah, Pharos is the biggest city on Great Morak, which is the biggest island in the known world. It looks to me like it's larger than the Reach, even. It's pretty darn big. Pharos is in the northeast northwest rather corner of the island a port beside a river so it looks like it's in a really good spot and it's not terribly far from karth great morak with along with karth forms the jade gates the stone cow is one of the gods of pharaohs apparently i kind of doubt it'll ever come up in the main narrative but you know we love world building john hagee points out this quote half a year gone that man could scarcely wake fire from dragon glass he wants to know what that means what is waking fire from dragon glass means if it's just an allusion to using it like flint and that's a sick burn on Quay's part, right? <laughs> She's just saying, oh, he could, all he could do was use flint. Burn? <laughs> a sick burn, yeah. <laughs> nice. Good one, John. That's his joke. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting question because we know that the bottom line is that whoever this guy is, he's taking advantage of the fact that magic is on the rise. And what does it mean that you can wake fire from dragonglass? Is there some sort of minor spell, some sort of something that did work in this era of lower magic? 
that you could get a little bit of flame or flame energy out of it. I mean, it is frozen fire, right? So the idea that you could coax a fire out of it is kind of compelling from, um, at least from the way the wording of all these things is done. So I like that, but I don't think I have a strong answer. Something to look out for, though. I think we're going to get a little more into the understanding of obsidian dragonglass when uh, the winds of winter comes and we actually start to see it used as a weapon in large amounts, which I presume is going to happen in, in the winds of winter and maybe not until stream of spring, but probably the winds of winter. John also wonders if Jorah was learning about the Car- Carthian marriage customs for himself, right? He learned why Zara wanted to marry, but maybe his in- initial <laughs> instinct was to find out about Car- Carthian marriage customs so he could marry Danny. On the other hand, he's pretty adamant about getting the hell out of there as soon as possible, which doesn't really fit with him trying to marry her in Karth, but I certainly wouldn't deny that Jorah would jump at the chance to marry Danny if he could. Finally, one last interesting nugget in this chapter. Quote, The the collar was set with an enchanted amethyst that Zaro swore would ward her against all poisons. Ah, enchanted amethyst warding against poisons, whereas the silver hairnet that Santa's going to wear to the purple wedding is an enchanted amethyst that is poison. So, I mean, that's not uncommon in the real world for the cure and the antidote, or the poison and the antidote to be made from the same substance, or at least to contain the same substance in in both. But interestingly as well, that the silver hairnet that's going to be given to Santa might be getting arranged right now. Because in Tyrion's next chapter, which we're about to deal with, He's thinking about, well, I wonder where Littlefinger's at. I haven't heard from him. He's down at Bitterbridge negotiating with the Tyrells. And we know that negotiating with the Tyrells is the Purple Wedding pre-planning party, which includes the plan to poison Joffrey and frame it on Sansa and Tyrion. By the way, just regarding this collar quote, I just wanted to bring up the significance of it being a collar Mm -hmm. that Zaro gave her. Okay. That's it. I mean, he's giving her a collar. Oh, a collar. Who's that? A slave collar. That's right. Great catch. She gets rid right. of it. But... And he wants to marry her to steal her dragon. Yeah, that's yeah, a really just, And to kind of yeah. make her like a gilded cage slave. Like, yeah. you know, the old proverbial. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a great catch. Collar. Yeah. Nice. Because it could have been. He, George could have picked any type any of Any kind of necklace. Any, any kind jewelry, of jewelry. Yeah. Could have bracelet or ring, but he went collar. Good yeah. call. Yeah, that's probably not an accident. All right. Tyrion 9. The gang thinks Marcella is a riot, a.k.a. the one with King Brad. Possibly the shortest first sentence of the entire book. The girl never wept. Hard to have a shorter sentence than four words. You can do a sentence with two or three, but it's hard to start a chapter off with that. (laughs) Marcella is both very strong (laughs) here, or also just like, Screw King's Landing. Yeah, she's like, it's good that I'm getting out of here. This place is bad. <laughs> it's about to be war here. There's starvation. And yeah. But no, Marcella is frequently referred to as being, a, you know, a good kid. Yeah. A good definitely. Egg. Yeah. You know, she's strong. She's smart. She's beautiful. She has some good cutting she, lines back at her brother. You know, yeah, yeah. she's the best of the, the three Lannister children, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't Tommen's mind anyone fine. who likes Tommen. Tommen's but, fine, but like Marcella is cool. Yeah. Marcella's cooler and. She beats, she beats Tristane at Cyvox. That's <laughs> true for me. Yes, Tristane's not very good at Cyvox, it looks like. And she is, yeah. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that we see the list of ships that's taking Marcella for Dorne. We get to see the very clear instructions that Tyrion has given the captain. They seem to be intelligent instructions. Interestingly, Davos is so knowledgeable about the fleet at King's Landing, about the royal fleet, that 
he names exactly the missing ones when they when the battle comes and they're all sailing up. He's like, gosh, where is this one, this one, this one, and this one? And it's the exact ones that just left to take Marcella to Dorn. So that when that comes up, it's just another example of why Davos really should have been in charge of all that, not just one of the ships, because his his level of understanding is just amazing. This book, this chapter is also the one where we get introduced to the Kettleblacks. Tyrion gloats about having them watched and how oh, Cersei, you're so dumb. I, I've got all this taken, uh, uh, taken care of. They're all under wraps. But as we find out later, Littlefinger has them like triple agents. I don't even know what's what, how many levels it goes. But apparently, they're more Littlefingers than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. Also, Tyrion says the unlikely name. Yeah. <laughs> I love that reaction. It's like the unlikely name of Osfrid Kettleblack. Uh, just because he's low born or just because that's a weird name? Yeah. And I, remember, think, I think the former. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wonder if they just made that. It's like, let's make a name up. Uh, calling the, and of course, George is having fun with that because it's like the pot calling the kettle black, yeah. you know? And <laughs> so he's definitely having fun with that name. But I, still, with the point about Littlefinger, he probably hasn't taken them yet because they've just shown up in uh, King's Landing working for Cersei and Littlefinger isn't there. He's, he's a bitter bridge. So I think he bribes them to bring over to his side once he gets back. But it's possible he was this far ahead of the game and they were in his employ before they even showed up at King's Landing. They may have showed up at King's Landing part because he told them to or something like that. So the riot is really bad. It's really nasty. The, the total damage, let's go through that real quick. Unknown number of commoners, of course. That's, you know, there's no way for anyone to count that, really. Um, but it'd be a lot. Uh, nine gold cloaks were killed. Lollis was raped and impregnated. Tyrek was missing. Now, Tyrek is interesting. I, it's long been theorized that Varys snatched Tyrek and is hiding him and will eventually try to install him as Lord of Casterly Rock as his own chosen Lannister. I think that's a fine theory, but I kind of lean against it because just the logistics of knowing exactly when the riot will happen. I, I do think Varus encouraged the riot, maybe even was the main reason it happened. But knowing exactly when it's going to have its fever pitch, exactly when the riot's going to break out, rather than just setting, up, setting it up to happen at some point, I just can't believe Varus would know exactly the moment the riot's going to happen. Because part of the reason it happens is Joffrey gets all petulant about being hit with dung. For all we know, Varus had someone do that. Maybe he knew that would, what kind of reaction that would cause. But... Still, you can see why that might be a little too much of a prediction from Varus. Even Varus isn't perhaps that talented at knowing what's coming. But it's certainly possible. So Tyrek might just be dead. And the reason this is an enduring mystery is that they never find the body. So yeah, he could, he could be out there. Varus might have him, but we'll have to see. It's an enduring mystery. Also, Sir Aaron Santagar is killed, um, which is interesting because he was, the I think, the only Dornish man in the group. So... Uh, there's a Dornishman killed, right? As Marcella is sent to Dorn. That may have been part of the anger of the crowd. Probably not. Probably just a coincidence. The High Septon is killed also. Sir Preston Greenfield is killed. And it appears that Sir Preston Greenfield, as Joe points out, uh, this is something I missed. I didn't really uh, I didn't really consider this. Preston Greenfield was the closest one to Tommen. And Tommen gets through fine. And Preston Greenfield is killed. So it's quite possible that Preston Greenfield gave his life to save Tommen there. Or at least that his presence saved Tommen uh, a little more indirectly. Joff sending the hound to go after whoever threw that dung at him was, as Tyrion yells later, it's just stupid. There's no real analysis needed there. It is stupid. <laughs> and uh, maybe, so maybe Varus did know that was happening. Maybe he just read, read Joffrey like a book. Um, Joffrey's reactions, 
it's that predictable. He is not um, a complicated kid. He's awful, psychopathic, but simple-ish. You know, you can kind of predict what he's going to do. Boros actually raises his sword to Tyrion briefly when Tyrion calls him ugly. This is a good example of the difference of authority that Tywin and Tyrion have. Tyrion is acting hand. Boros would never have raised his sword and called Tyrion ugly if it were Tywin. He would not have, or if Tywin was standing there. He would never have done that. Just not even considered, because you do not do that to Tywin. So even though Tyrion seeks to be like his father, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes consciously, this still shows a big difference in how they're viewed. And I, I do think appearance of certainly Ty- Tywin's reputation, long standing as hand is a big part of that. But people look down on Tyrion for what he looks like as well. Man, it's a big part of it. Tyrion could, so, could totally be one of those people that is like, do you, do you know what my father would say about this? <laughs> you know, in any situation, he could just be like, That's true. my father, Tywin Lannister, <laughs> would not take kindly to you embarrassing me in public. He'd be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a theme here uh, as well, maybe not a theme, but a, a point that's made in this chapter, a big point is that the Lannisters are hated, uh, pretty much widely hated. I mean, by a lot of common people, partly it started back with the sack of Lannis, of uh, King's Landing by Tywin and then has continued on since Joffrey's rule hasn't been great. People don't like Cersei a lot, but Tyrion, they blame most of all, according to Sir Jaslyn Bywater. And Tyrion thinks to himself, quote, Perhaps my lord father was right to despise me all these years. If this is the best I can achieve, Tyrion thought when he was alone. He thinks to himself about Jamie. So I bring up this point about how they would definitely have just obeyed Tywin. And Boros never would have done that to, to Tyrion or to Tywin. He wouldn't have done it to Jamie either. They would have also just followed and obeyed Jamie almost without question because of who he is, how he, Tyrion talks about how Jamie has that gift of, of men will just follow him because of his extreme charisma and ability and high station. But the high station is all Tyrion has in their eyes. They, they look down on him for not being a warrior, for not having that charisma. But there is more to this. We've talked before about how Tyrion seems to have given up in the first place on trying to please the commoners because in his mind, they're going to hate him no matter what he does. But Westorian Paul Barry suggests that Tyrion could have, if he wasn't so much like his father, found a few ways to improve their odds in holding King's Landing by winning the loyalty of some of the commons. Maybe even some love in the process. Maybe not just making them not hate the Lannisters. Why does he not do what, say, the Tyrells do? Try to feed the people. Sure, I mean, a lot of the regional food got torched. Their fault, if we're, uh, if we're being real here. But they could maybe buy more from overseas. Maybe, you know, there's, there's certainly the issue of, of Stannis' ships maybe stopping them. But the fleet's down at Storm's End right now. They have an opportunity to maybe sneak some food through. Jon Snow later in the Dance with Dragons actually takes out a loan to make sure people can eat. I don't think the Lannisters would need to take out a loan. They just have money. And, and it seems like they probably just have money even without the Lannisters' personal cash getting involved. Why, why do I think this? Why do I think they can afford it? Well, Tyrion says a little finger before sending him to Bitterbridge. Take as much gold as you require. If the city falls, Stannis will steal it all anyway. So clearly they have some extra. It's a great point by Paul Barry here. Tyrion could have probably, well, maybe not probably, possibly won the commons over, or at least made them a little more neutral, at least balanced out all the bad things he did to make them hate him. Even beyond whatever prejudice they may have, there's some things he did that aren't rooted in those prejudices, such as not long from now, he's going to burn a lot of people out of their homes and businesses to create some space along the, the, the shoreline there. 
And he's going to confiscate private merchant ships to use uh, in the naval engagement. These are not things that endear him to commoners and even middle class and upper class folks. But he doesn't do a lot to assuage them either. He just says, live with it. And uh, we should definitely think about why he had other options. You know, this is not the only thing Tyrion could have done. He had other ways to manage this issue. And he doesn't even really think of it. At no point do we see Tyrion think, what could I do for these people? How can I... He just doesn't really think about it. He just thinks of it as a problem to, to avoid or to, to be worried about. You know, he's certainly aware of how dangerous the commoners are, but all he seems to do is want to avoid th- that danger, not address yeah, I mean, it. It doesn't, it's not really clear. I don't think Tyrion has much experience with them at You're all. You're right, he doesn't. I mean, we obviously haven't seen the extent of his life, but it, Tywin obviously wanted to keep him not so out in public. Yeah, and in his next chapter, we're going to see how... A lot of that is his detachment because of his extremely high birth. He just doesn't get things like when he like there's some things he misses. Like when he tries to send Shay to the kitchens, he a doesn't realize how offensive that is to her. B Varus is like, dude, that's not a good idea. Like people are going to fondle her. They're going to ask her questions about where she came from. And it's, it's, it's all common sense, basically, that Varus tells Tyrion there. But it's not common sense to him because he's so highborn. He just doesn't get these things. He never lived highborn privilege. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Tyrion is definitely unaware of certain things there. And you can see that with some of the other highborn characters. Ned and Catelyn, they have some of these blind spots too, to be, if we're being fair. But Ned and Catelyn also are older and more aware of some of these things. That's another thing about Tyrion is he's a bit younger. But he's not young, to be clear. So beyond these, quote, endearing actions, the King's Hand really just, bottom line, the King's Hand, that should be his job. If the city is starving and the King is 13 or 14, then yeah, the hand, that should absolutely be his job, number one, and, and be more than anyone else's job. And Ned, Ned would have fed them. Edmure is doing that now. The Riverlands is torched and he's bringing his people in his castle, keeping them fed, protecting them. Danny would probably feed them. Sansa would definitely feed them. Renly would have fed them. Stannis, I'm less sure about that, but it's a fair, and it's a fair complaint against him, but that's getting off topics. Tywin would not, and there's the heart of the matter. That's where Tyrion gets it. It's not that Tyrion, if the idea was presented with him he, to him, he might be going like, okay, I could see the value there. Tywin would just be like, nah, we don't, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> so when Jocelyn Bywater gives him this bad news, we should consider that Tyrion's frustration at being the most hated of all isn't as unjust as he thinks it is. Sure, they blame him for a lot of things that aren't his fault, and, I, and they don't blame people like Littlefinger and Cersei nearly enough. But again, of everyone, out of all the people in King's Landing, the acting hand has the greatest responsibility and authority to feed the city, and he doesn't. So, but to be fair, none of the council bring it up. Barris, Littlefinger, Cersei, no one else brings up, hey, maybe we should feed people. <laughs> maybe we should do that. Maybe that's a strategy that would be good. But on the other hand, Varus and Littlefinger, for example, may have considered that and specifically didn't mention it because, well, Littlefinger's going to ride in town with the Tyrells who are going to bring food and earn a lot of love for that. And he's going to be associated with those saviors because he's going to ride in with them. He can get to say, I'm the one who brought this alliance together. I'm the one who helped bring the Tyrells to the city. So he's going to get part of the credit for helping feed the city. He may have thought of that in advance. Uh, So if he hadn't helped starve the city in the first place, he wouldn't be a savior. This is what Varus is doing on a larger scale, right? We do give him possible credit for this riot and uh, fomenting the starvation or, and, and not doing anything to help. 
But he wants to cause a riot over as much of the country as possible, not just King's Landing. He wants war pretty much everywhere so he can have his chosen candidate come in to do what Littlefinger's doing, ride in as a savior. Or at least Littlefinger riding in is like part of the savior squad where Varys is trying to bring in the savior, Fagon, right? Knowing Varys' plans, I swear, it makes, it makes these Tyrion chapters so much richer and so much different because there's all these constant warnings from Pycelle and from Cersei and from Tyrion's inner monologue, from Arya's accidental eavesdropping back in the Game of Thrones, that Varys has his own motivations. But on reread, we actually know what those are. Right? <laughs> we get to know exactly, almost exactly, what he's doing as we witness everything he uh, in real time. Well, real time. Reading time. <laughs> Again, I'm going to point to how important Tyrion's choice of Jaslyn Bywater is here. His honesty and service is just so valuable compared to what he gets from other people. I mean, Tyrion's next important, most important guy is Bronn, who he directly says he doesn't trust, <laughs> like leaving Tommen in Bronn's uh, clutches. So that just goes to show how few uh, of his own men he can trust. And in a few chapters, he's going he's gonna to send his clansmen off to... to uh, live in uh, the forest to fight Stannis. So he's not even going to have them around. And, and they're among the most loyal of his men. Uh, Jocelyn Bywater, something we, we, we pointed to earlier. Uh, there were certain people who couldn't look Tyrion in the eyes and certain who could. Littlefinger looked him directly in the eyes. Bywater is one of the ones who can't. He's not afraid of Tyrion. Littlefinger looks him, also looks him in the eyes. He's not afraid of him either, but he's the opposite kind of guy is Bywater, meaning that Bywater is just given straight truth where Littlefinger, you can't trust anything he says. <laughs> Bywater also points out how many untrustworthy gold cloaks there are, and he talks about what's going to happen if, 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 you know, they don't want to look cowardly in front of their friends, but as soon as people start running, they're going to run just as fast or even faster. Well, that's exactly what happens. Once uh, Joffrey is, is forced to leave the battle by Cersei, a bunch of them run, and it causes a huge problem. Meanwhile, after all this, Important things are happening off page. Let's talk for a second about Bitterbridge, since we've referred to it indirectly quite a lot this, uh, this chapter. Quote. He wondered again about Littlefinger. There had been no word from Peter Baelish since he had ridden off for Bitterbridge. That might mean nothing. Or everything. He then thinks he wouldn't blame Mace Tyrell for not wanting his daughter to marry Joffrey. But it seems they don't really learn what sort of man Joffrey is until later, meaning Littlefinger probably doesn't tell them. Which we know from Sansa. Uh, rather, yeah, uh, a storm of swords when Littlefinger is spilling his secrets to Sansa. Here, at this point of this quote, he's just, he's referring to the point where he's just met Olena. Quote. A fearsome old harridan, and not near as frail as she pretends. When I came to Highgarden to dick her for Marjorie's hand, she let her lord son bluster while she asked pointed questions about Joffrey's nature. I praised him to the skies, to be sure whilst my men spread disturbing tales amongst Lord Tyrell's servants. That is how the game is played. And we know they heard those disturbing tales and acted on them. Remember, this that quote was from A Storm of Swords, but not until after the marriage had been agreed to did they act on those disturbing tales. So it's interesting to kind of parse this all out. So now this next quote comes in Sansa's first A Storm of Swords chapters, which is well before the quote from Littlefinger that Shea had just read. So we're, we're kind of doing this in a little out of order, but in, in, in a way to show you how all this breaks down. Quote. The lad seems kingly enough, I'll grant you. A bit full of himself, but that would be his Lannister blood. We have heard some troubling tales, however. Is there any truth to them? Has this boy mistreated you? Well, when we get back to that scene, or we get to that scene, back to that scene, it's a reroute. Yeah, it's back to that scene. In A Storm of Swords, 
Well, we'll certainly see how she handles it. But we know she's like, at first, she's kind of shy about telling the truth about Joffrey. But eventually she says, yeah, he's awful. And of course he is. We That's straightforward. And I mean, Elena could have asked anyone at court. Yeah. Was willing to say <laughs> anything. True. I mean, it was public. People it's saw her stripped and beaten. Yeah, it's going to be real hard to keep that info from her. <laughs> so she's got lots of corroboration for that. Yeah. Um, so the hairnet, we mentioned that a few times this episode already. It's given to her by Dantos in the last chapter of this book. And it's the same chapter that Littlefinger returns to the city. And also the same chapter that Joff sets aside Sansa for Marjorie. So all those things happen in Sansa's last chapter of this book. Last episode, we pointed out that the players of the Game of Thrones of all shapes and sizes recognize the issue with Joffrey and Tommen, that Tommen could be a puppet while Joffrey is kind of incorrigible. So everyone kind of notices that. Anyone who's a power player knows that. The Tyrells learn that not only is Tommen weak, but Joffrey is abusive. So the Tommen solution, as we call it from the Tyrells' point of view, is even more obvious because not only is Tom in a better ruler, but Joffrey is, is bad and will beat their daughter. So they just have so much motivation to make that move. See, and I just want to put out a few of mind. Um, I think it's a, a gamble of a strategy as well, though. Um, yeah. Because they have to, I mean, kill him. It has to be timed just right. You know, right. the timing of that so that she's allowed to marry Tom in afterwards and they can't kill him before because it seems incredibly unlikely that they would let Tom and marry her without having to like save this alliance. Yeah. Because he's a puppet ruler. Well, that's a great point too, because the way they would get around that is, well, they have to have like permission from the high septum. Yeah. But the high septum was just killed in the riot. So they don't know. So in order to know that they could have the high septum support, they have to know who he is. Like, well, can we corrupt this guy or what do, what do we need to give this guy to get him, get what we want from him? Well, they don't even know who he is there. He doesn't exist. So that that's an interesting little conundrum to, to mix into all this. So yeah, that's a good point. So they had to, they may have thought of this big overweight high septum, like, oh, we can bribe that guy to make this happen. And then been like, oh crap, he's dead. So um, that might be a little thorn in our, <laughs> our plan here. Yeah, they managed to, yeah, I mean, they, it wasn't consummated. It was no. perfect. Yeah, it never was. It was just <laughs> perfect. It's true, it never was. And then, you know, and, and that's, that's probably why they wanted it to happen so publicly during the wedding so there would be no doubt the wedding was that it was never consummated because it would be yeah it wasn't the, the wedding happens during the wedding and it didn't get to that point yeah it, was very wasn't, publicly, it wasn't after it yeah yeah <laughs> that's that's pretty important so you, you got you can see all the planning that olena and littlefinger did here to just make this so perfect and so public and to, to send the right message and have the right impact and blame the right people joe with a great point here uh, he says, after the oppression and brutality visited upon them throughout Game of Thrones and this book, too, the small folk finally make their own strike back. And it's just as brutal as anything. Puts you in mind of a wheel that never breaks. Yeah, I mean, they're just desperate. And uh, you got like unarmed people attacking fully armored, armed Kingsguard and, and just getting slaughtered. It's, it's really you got to really be in the quite a state of mind to do that. But they're starving. So, I mean. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to, to have not eaten for days. How angry that would make me. How I don't I'm pretty damn angry, I'm sure. Subtle use of the Bravosi here. Tyrion, when among the ships he confiscates, some of them are Bravosi. Stannis will not want to anger them, apparently, but he does engage with them later on in dance, and Cersei does as well, because of course the Iron Bank is going to become more and more important as we go on. They've already been introduced, but their role is uh, subtle to this point. The Sea Lord of Bravos, important as well to mention that he witnessed the pact for Viserys and Arianne so long ago that Bravos is 
pretty involved in Westerosi politics from a lot of angles here and apparently going to get more involved. So Tyrion thinks on how lucky he is that Stannis hasn't arrived yet. And you're going to want to keep that in mind when we get to Davos 2, which is next, and how the timing is so crucial here. And people are like, like Salador San and Davos are like, let's just go to King's Landing now, quickly. Let's not sit here waiting for Courtney Penrose to answer this challenge and do all this other stuff. Let's go now. And well, it made all the difference. If Stannis had gone sooner, well, Tywin might not have gotten there in time. So more on that when we get to Davos too. And of course, we see evidence that Stannis' letter is actually working. People are, you know, during the riots, people were calling out, uh, calling out the incest, which the main supplier of that info was the, uh, the Stannis letter about uh, Joffrey and um, the proof, so-called proof of the incest. <laughs> Tyrion's kind of surprised by the knowledge that he's so hated, which is a bit of a surprise. I mean, we talked about that pretty thoroughly, but he also has his own kind of Tywin-esque reaction to it, which is he doesn't really show a lot of concern for them. It's almost like he holds a grudge against them for the riot. When he burns that all that big part of Flea Bottom, he basically says, you know, if we lose all of Flea Bottom, so be it. Um, and that... Joe points out that might be a little bit of pettiness uh, towards the commoners for the riot. Might be. We'll take a few questions here from Will Moss. Don't they work for him from the start because their father is his servant in the veil? I think, yeah, Will is right. That's yeah. a good point. I should have realized that. Yes, their father has been in the veil a long time. And uh, I can't remember which one. Is he Osfried? It's Osfried, Osmond, Os, gee, Osney, yeah, and uh, Osmond. I think Osney might be the father or Osfrid. I forget. Whatever. One of those guys is can't keep them straight. <laughs> uh, and they're all in big trouble by the end of A Dance of Dragons. Uh, two of them really big trouble. The third uh, almost as bad. Anyway, so yeah, good point by Will. Good catch. That was my fault. It, it's almost certainly they're already already working for Littlefinger even at this point. Joe Magician says seems like she was partly seeing how much Sansa hated Joff if she could be reasonably be blamed for his death. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point, too. Uh, he's referring to Olena, not just trying to figure out what Joffrey's like to know what kind of husband he's going to be for Marjorie, but to see if this plan to throw her under the bus is going to work out. That's a good point by Joe. Very good catch. I like that. Tyrion also thinks about including Reachmen to attack Dorne to get them in the war. And later, Stannis in Davos 2, which is again next, he thinks about how the Dornishmen are gathering in the passes. Tyrion knows that they're not going to invade, that it's just a feint, but he thinks it might fool Stannis, and it does. Sansa mentions Aemon the Dragon Knight, crying when Nerys married their brother, and he, she mentions Eric versus Eric, which is, uh, you know, the two Kingsguard knights. Now, she says that they died with tears on their cheeks as they fought each other, but Mushroom says that they cursed each other as traitors, so we don't know which is true. Either way, I want to draw your attention to Balin and Balin, which is an Arthurian legend. And that was uh, pointed out to us in our Facebook group, I believe. If I remember, it could have been Flick. I'm not sure. Shout out to whoever dropped that note. I must not have included who it was that said that. And so, yeah, Balin, B-A-L-I-N, and Balin, B-A-L-A-N. That's an Arthurian legend. Look that up. You'll see a lot of similarities to these stories here. Now, something I never noticed before, Jalabar Joe. I thought he didn't speak common, but he definitely says something in common here. He says he saw Preston Greenfield go back for the High Septon. So 
uh, that's probably when he got killed, which actually kind of undermines what I was saying about maybe he was uh, being particularly protective of Tommen. But maybe he saw Tommen to safety and then went back for the highest septon and then was killed. But anyway, it does uh, add a little more clarity to what Preston is doing. Anyway, that is, that's a big chapter. Davos 2, the one where Sir Courtney challenges Stannis to a duel. AKA Shadow Baby 2, Electric Boogaloo. Why do you keep saying duel? Just for the fun of it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's, it's from, no, it's... um. Is it a reference? It's a, yeah, hearing? I can't remember what it's to, but it's a, a fight, a duel. Um, oh. I can't remember where it's from. I don't know. I was, I was not sure. Hopefully someone in the chat knows what you were referencing. Yeah, it might be an old know. cartoon. It might be Bugs Bunny or something oh. like that. I'm not sure. But yeah, hmm. it's in my mind from some old comedy show. Okay. So Sir Courtney... Great character who comes almost out of nowhere to drop a series of great lines only to die ignominiously. That puts him in a category with Oberyn Martell and Corrin Halfhand. All three of these characters are quite brave, but don't stay in the story very long. But Courtney, the least amount of time of those three. And here's his opening line. Sir Courtney Penrose wore no armor. The opposite of Renly, given that he's about to be killed by a shadow baby. But the same result by the same means. He trusts in Storm's End. Right, he's not wearing armor because Storm's End is the armor, is his armor. He is confident, and well, it's also indicated by his parting shot at, near the end of the chapter, or well, near the end of his exchange with Stannis. I give you fair warning: if you force me to take my castle by storm, you may expect no mercy. I will hang you for traitors, every one of you, as the gods will it. Bring on your storm, my lord, and recall, if you do, the name of this castle. Boom. I love it. Courtney has some of the best dialogue. I swear this this is a this is a really great chapter. And of course, also Courtney is not wrong. It's a beast of a castle. Hence, Stannis taking it via unconventional means. That puts it, that's putting it nicely, huh? Now, Stannis says he can't have men say he was defeated at Storm's End. That's part pride, part authority speaking. Personally, I don't. I think he's overstating that point. Now he brings up the single combat issue. Courtney does. And many of the Stannis' men love this idea. They're like, oh, I'll win undying glory, you know, single combat. What a, what a great story that would make. Davos wonders if Sir Courtney is seeking a way to yield with honor. Now, yeah, it's, it's possible. On the other hand, you know, and the other people point out that there's, you know, it's garrison. It's a garrison. There shouldn't be any really great fighters here. It shouldn't be that hard of a win. Nevertheless, Stannis is not having it. And later we find out why, but he doesn't reveal in the open until he's alone with Davos. But in the meantime, all these factors, the honor, the pride, this glory seeking, it's all pretty well reflected in this quote right here. Lord Caron agreed. An easy victory to be sure. And what glory to win Storm's End with a single stroke. Stannis raked them all with a look. You chatter like magpies and with less sense. I will have quiet. <laughs> that line is so like yeah. You chatter like magpies and with less sense. This is so the opposite of how Renly would speak to his lords, right? He would be like all flattery and be like, you would all make good choices. You all have good ideas. But let me just say that blah, blah, blah. And you know what he would do. Of course, there's no, it, it doesn't make any sense that Renly would be in this position of needing to take Storm's End. But he would go with the single combat route and he would be like, Loris, Bring me Storm's End. <laughs> he would be so happy to send Loris in, and Loris would be so happy to do it for him. <laughs> that writes it, that fan fiction writes itself. But Stannis softens, despite this like harsh tone he takes with his lords. He really softens when he's alone with Davos and Melisandre. And it shows us a different side of him. And this is so clever of George. 
Stannis is at some of his worst in this chapter, but he's also at some of his best. It's probably the only time in the entire story, the entire written books that we've seen so far, that Stannis is very human. And he's talking about how he knows he did love Renly and some of these other moments that are almost tender from Stannis. I, I like when he says that he missed him Davos sorely. Yeah, right? Yeah, he's he's nice. Like, he's, yeah. he's a, this is the most human he'll ever be. And I wonder if we'll see this again when he's besieged at Winterfell or something like that and he's faced with this decision about Shireen. I think that's when we might see him get back to a place of this kind of tenderness and humanity. But I also wonder how much of his humanity is, you know, tapped or whatnot by making the shadow babies. Definitely a good bit. That's a great part of the great thing to mention because it's such a big part of this chapter and how Davos notices that Stannis is drained, drained a bit. And it's going to, you know, he he doesn't notice how much drained Stannis is because the chapter ends with shadow baby. So he doesn't fully see it, but he's already noticed just from the first shadow baby. So the second one's, yeah. And then, of course, Melisandre says, I can't do another one from you. We understand why Stannis likes Davos. We get it. Davos is one of the most beloved of all the characters. Stannis, however, is, well, he's pretty gray, as black and white as he seems sometimes. I think he's pretty darn gray. And his love in the fandom is also pretty gray. Some people absolutely love Stannis. Some people think he's terrible. There are definitely people in between. I'm probably in between. There's a lot about him that I really like, but there's also a lot about him I don't like. But Davos, yeah, I'm just I love the guy. There's there's very little uh, pushback, very little caveats on that uh, claim. Of course, also Davos's finger bones come up here. And it's interesting that uh, despite all his reluctance to worship R'hllor and his preference for the seven, getting luck from finger bones is not really the kind of superstition that falls under the auspices of belief in the seven. So it's kind of like an add on belief and. Stannis asks if Davos still has them. Davos says yes, but in his next chapter, he's going to lose them because in his next chapter is Blackwater and of course he's going to go into the water and lose his finger bones. So, Stannis was kind of being a little bit um, well, I could say shady. I could say... Mm, shadowy? Shadowy. I could say, you know, not forthright. He knows he's going to stake Storm's End. Well, he believes it because Melisandre told him. And he knows single combat will be fast and he needs it to be fast, but he'd rather sacrifice a part of himself to make it certain, like give up some of his life force, maybe even a little of his honor, though. He doesn't see it that way. Either way, he is 100% certain it's going to happen. Quote, Sarah Courtney will be dead within the day. Melisandre has seemed in the flames of the future, his death and the manner of it. He will not die in nightly combat, needless to say. So that is really something. So all that conversation that Davos was having with Courtney, he already knew that this was going to happen. Melisandre had already told him this before the parley. So when all those guys are like, single combat, and Stannis is like, you guys are idiots. <laughs> he, he has more information than they do. <laughs> so no, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a point. <laughs> so Davos is, when he's on the boat, rowing Melisandre to the, the great so they can get around the, the, the wards on the walls. He says, oh, I, I have no responsibility here. But he, he can't really make that claim. He's the only guy that could do this, this smuggling business, this, this skill with a ship at night. There's no one else that could do this that Stannis has in his army. So it's kind of hard for him to claim that he doesn't have a role in it. But let's, let's come back to that. A couple other points first. Stannis says one day he'll make Davos a lord. 
He surely does that and more. Uh, and he says that he won't lo- thank me for it, though. It's all this responsibility and boringness and all this. And it's pretty close to true. Sir Courtney uh, jumping here. It's a parallel to Jockin, right? Thrown off a wall um, to their death by a supernatural being, or at least using supernatural means. His death was meaningless, meaning Chiswick's, unlike Sir Courtney's, which has a huge impact on the war. But we also have the parallel of Jockin and Mel being crucial in a huge castle switching sides. That's only five chapters after this one where Jockin and Arya have the weasel soup incident where that leads to Harrenhal going from Lannister control to Roose Bolton control, which is at the point where he's about to switch to the, to the Lannisters or at least to himself while allying with Lannisters. But at that time, he's still with the Starks. So cool parallel there. You got uh, an assassination that leads to a major castle switching teams. In both cases, there's also a similar discussion of responsibility. Wh- whose claim is it? Who's responsible for killing him? It's a really interesting ethical conundrum. Davos claims he has nothing to do with Mel's mission, and she laughs that off as absurd. And she's right. He can't deny he's part of it. This, even though he's unwilling, he did it. Arya won't claim to be blameless with the weasel soup thing, but I mean, that doesn't seem to, it doesn't really seem to matter to her one way or another. She doesn't really think about whether there's guilt or innocence. She's just, she's just doing her thing. But Jockin is going to stab a man in the chest and come to her and, well, quote, The Lorathi brought the blade to Arya still red with heart's blood and wiped it clean on the front of her shift. A girl should be bloody too. This is her work. Yeah, so Jockin is saying that, you know, when deaths, you sh- people should take responsibility for who they kill. It's, a, it's an important factor. It's not a little thing to just kill and, and not worry about who did it and why. This is also sort of um, a form of sacrifice, right? Basically giving up a life to replace the life that was taken in the Arya situation. And it's kind of the same thing here, right? Uh, Stannis is sacrificing part of his life force to kill off Sir Courtney. It's life, death, death paying for life, life paying for death. Note how Tyrion and Varys unintentionally discuss this same comparison. Shadow babies versus faceless men, meaning Arya's future teachers. Quote. And for Sir Courtney's death, well, we know Stannis hired cell sales from the free cities. Perhaps he bought himself a skilled assassin as well. A very skilled assassin. There are such. I used to dream that one day I'd be rich enough to send a faceless man after my sweet sister. <laughs> so, shows you again how ridiculously expensive they are. Like Tyrion, a son of Cassie Rock, can't even afford a faceless man either. Jeez. <laughs> and all this business of sacrifice is a wonderful circle to close. Well, it's, it's kind of dark, but it, it's entertaining. Because <laughs> speaking of sacrifices, it just wraps up so nicely that a big point here, a huge point here, is Sir Courtney would yield the castle if not for the issue of Edric Storm. And this is complicated because he clearly thinks Stannis is going to kill Edric because as Robert's son, he has a claim, even though he's a bastard. And we got to ask ourselves, well, what does Stannis intend toward Edric Storm at this point? Right now, it seems like Stannis's only care is to use him as evidence because of his black hair and blue eyes and say, look, this is what Baratheon-born kids look like, unlike what the Lannister kids all look like. But so another, but later the idea comes to sacrifice him. I don't know if Stannis has heard this yet, and if maybe he's just not telling Davos. But he he does talk about it. He says, "I must have the boy." Melisandre has seen it. 
So my thinking is that Melisandre knows what's going to be done and what she wants to do with Edric, that she wants to burn him, but she hasn't told Stannis. She just is being more vague about it, like, oh, we need him, but she hasn't said why. Or she has told Stannis why, and Stannis isn't willing to tell Davos because he knows Davos is going to be like, what are you going to do? You're going to burn him? Excuse me? So we don't know. Uh, Stannis could be being even shadier than we thought here if he does know the intention here. But And if he didn't intend Edric Storm harm, why doesn't he say so? Alistair Florence says so. He says, no, he won't do him harm. And, but Courtney won't believe. And Courtney's right even if he doesn't know the exact reason why he's right. So Davos says he's not involved in the killing of Courtney Penrose, and, and Melisandre argues with him, and I tend to agree with Melisandre that he is involved, even though he didn't want to be. But Stannis' involvement is another question. I think that he, it's hard to say what he knows, what he doesn't, whether he's in denial, and his reaction to Courtney Penrose's death is going to be lesser, because... Whatever guilt he feels over Courtney Penrose, it's going to pale in comparison to what he feels about his own brother. And that hugely important character-building moment for Stannis is here in this chapter, quote. I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming, and blood. Stannis looked down at his hands. I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh and my lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armored. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Devon says I thrashed and cried out. But what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died, and when I woke, my hands were clean. The denial is just palpable here. Stannis is just like leaning on these technicalities. Like, my hands were clean, so there was no blood on them. Clearly, I couldn't have done it. That is weak. (laughs) He saw something he couldn't have seen. (laughs) Davos is like, uh, this is wrong. (laughs) <laughs> something is up and it's cr- it's it's wild to think about i mean think about oversleeping battle right devin couldn't wake him up i mean you have got to be out to sleep through battle being late for battle like who can even sleep the night before a battle <laughs> that's nuts to me uh, so the magic is just so apparent here and the dual impact here of of how it impacts Stannis, his own denial kind of eats away at him a bit. You know he's guilty, even though he's trying to deny it. And he, and then the way he talks, you see how that guilt is sort of playing around in his head, even though he won't admit to it. But you also have the life drain. So the dual impact of a shadow baby is the guilt and the draining of his life. And here is, an ex- here is a description of it. Now that Stannis Baratheon had come into his power, the lordlings buzzed around him like flies around a corpse. He looks half a corpse, too years older than when I left Dragonstone. Devon said the king scarcely slept of late. Since Lord Renly died, he has been troubled by terrible nightmares, the boy had confided to his father. Maester's potions do not touch them. Only the Lady Melisandre can soothe him to sleep. Yeah, what is she doing to soothe him to sleep? Oh, I know. Well, if they're not making shadow babies, you know, they can't be, well, maybe, you know, she's making love, pleasuring him in other ways. (laughs) (laughs) But either way, this, this description is before the second shadow baby. So he's already looking half a corpse and years older before that. So this is a big part of just when you imagine Stannis, when you picture him in your head, it's appropriate to see a different version of Stannis pre-Storm's End to post-Storm's End. They should look like 15, 20 years apart, even though it's only been like a month. So it's an appropriate symbol for people to give up 
in a way, like the symbolism of giving up some of yourself for a child. <laughs> but in this case, a child isn't really a child. It's a killer shadow. It, one part, it, one, when you give up part of your own life to make a new complete life, this is giving up one a part of your life to create death. And it's fleeting. It's hard enough to grasp the morality of all this without the supernatural element. But let's get into it. However, uh, dis- despite that disclaimer, I mean, I think most of us would look at this as evil. It feels wrong. Is it more or less evil than the killing of Renly, though? And, or is it merely George making the method repugnant to challenge our sense of justice? If we accept that Stannis is the rightful king, and setting Daenerys aside, and no one really knows about her at this point anyway, he does have the best claim in terms of the law. I, I, I say that with full confidence. I mean... And this is a way for him to reduce bloodshed. Yeah, yeah. So Renly was a traitor. Sir Courtney defied multiple direct orders from his king, struck him in the face even. (laughs) So under the standard laws of Westeros, both of those two were fair game for execution. So really, this boils down to quibbling over the method of execution. Now, George is so clever here because he, he put the seed in our minds in the beginning of the entire darn series that we should quibble over the method because Ned Stark, following his example, Rob and John, they follow his example, swing the sword themselves when you have an execution to do. But it's also George is playing with this a little bit because this, the shadow is in Stannis's image. He's sort of swinging the sword himself, even though he's in denial about it. And there's these supernatural means backing it all up. He's sore. He's not gazing into the condemned man's eyes and hearing their final words, though, like a northerner were. That is the, the, the tradition that we're introduced to first and the one that we say, yeah, that sounds like the right way to do it. That sounds more honorable. But is that really what all this hinges on? Is that really the differentiator? Is it really just wrong because of the method of execution? Is it just wrong that Stannis didn't face Renly and hear his final words? Is that really the difference here? I don't know. Even if you think Stannis' methods were unfair or even evil, he has strong claim in, in, from legal ground in, in, as far as it ordering their deaths goes. So it really comes down to just the method of killing. And that is harder to argue with, I think, if you boil it down like that. It doesn't mean I'm sold. It just means that I think this is very, very gray. These would be tough enough questions in the real world, let alone in a setting with different cultural values during this uncertain, chaotic time when it's harder to follow the laws and, and rely on the laws with, with you know, armies everywhere. But then you mix in the supernatural and you can wind up going in circles because we just have no real world basis for comparison. We don't like, imagine if the supernatural element is a deciding factor. Just imagine that in the real world, where let's imagine capital punishment is not controversial. Now it is, but let's imagine that it isn't. If you could just push a button to execute someone who was condemned by the justice system, would that be immoral? I don't know. <laughs> I think I it mean, might be, but it, would, I, it, it might be, but it would save resources. It wouldn't be a matter of bloodshed or anything like that, but it would save resources, I suppose. Yeah, it would just it, it could also but, lead to like But it well, the thing it would it would do is it, it would it, there would be if it was that quick and easy, people who were sentenced to die like that, there would be even less of a chance of them getting off if they were, you know, wrongfully yeah. uh, imprisoned. You get into the whole like, yeah, whether it's right to execute somebody because you can't be certain they were guilty in the first place. You got to yeah. give them a chance to like. Stannis knows they're guilty. Yeah, there's no doubt worth. they were. They were. Yeah, um, in this case, you're right. That's not a. That's not an issue. We know they're guilty. Yeah, no whereas question of that. Ned, for example, killing you know executing at the beginning of um, a Game of Thrones. He knew they were guilty, 
but like there's more there. Yeah, he didn't really, he didn't really get into know. why like, we, they we broke know the they law. weren't yeah. we know that they weren't really guilty and I don't feel great about him executing them at the beginning of that book. Yeah, I, I it, agree. It doesn't you. set yeah. that precedent uh, that that execution is good. Thankfully, I don't want to think that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So it's really just hard to get to get, find your moral bearings in this. Um but that's one of the great tricks George has done here is put the most moral character that we have in the center of it to kind of be our guide, sort of. And Davos very clearly is not happy with any of this. He says that he's never felt, just about never felt this sad. That's like that line we have quoted farther down in the document here. The moral philosophizing continues later in the chapter, but is more straightforward when Davos and Mel discuss the framing of mankind. Because we have Davos and Stannis discussing morality. Then we have Davos and Melisandre on this little boat going to Storm's End. And they discuss the black-white paradigm or, or gray. And yeah. of course... Yeah, it's not something we quote in full here just because it's so meaty and good yeah. and long, but worth worth you know, thinking about. Yeah, it's so... You're right. Meaty is a great word for it. There's just so much to dig into and you just don't know where the end is and you don't... By the time you finish the meal, you still don't really know what it was because <laughs> it's just so... It, it touches on so many deeply held beliefs in the real world, like what mm. we all personally think about justice and life and death and responsibility Dark and light, even. Yeah. I mean, truly. And and the way we see people. I mean, of course, in this case, Melisandre believing in absolutes is like, well, she's a zealot, so that fits. Davos is a guy who used to be a smuggler and is now like a knight. So he he's like, well, I understand moral grayness. I've been on both sides of the law. I like I've, I have perspective that a lot of people don't, um, which makes him so interesting in this spot. A zealot versus a character who's had a very gray life. But we know that A Song of Ice and Fire is full of gray characters. So we we almost reflexively side with Davos here. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that's terribly debatable. I think Melisandre is wrong. Though, to be fair, there may come a time when she's not wrong, when it's the living versus the dead, when it's an existential threat. The good evil paradigm actually fits pretty well. <laughs> it's just humanity versus the dead. It's not hard to pick a side there. It's hard to pick a side when some of these houses go to war with each other, but that won't be hard to pick a side when, when that comes. So Melisandre herself is a moral conundrum. She's a representative of mankind's endless ability to look at the same thing, but see different things. It's a huge theme of this book, and George nails it by introducing it right away with the darn comet. One of the first things we see in this book is a bunch of people looking at the comet and interpreting it differently. Super well done. (laughs) I love it. Great job, George. Melisandre has several debates with Davos on this little boat. Uh, the most creative and interesting that a shadow, to me, to, at least to me, because it's outside of all this moral philosophizing, which gets difficult. Not that it's not interesting. It's just, it's just such a conundrum. But the, uh, this other bit where they talk about what is a shadow. Like Davos says it's a creature of darkness and Melisandre says, no, a shadow is a creature of light. It can't exist in darkness. That the brightest flames cast the darkest shadows. Perfect example of looking at the same thing and seeing something different. In this case, it's the opposite. It's not even like they see similar but different things. They see the opposite. Davos sees light or dark and she sees light. You know what I think of too in there is Arya's mantra of quiet as a shadow. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Especially with, you know, Melisandre talking about the long night, you know, and all that about when she talks about when that comes, obviously. And Arya uh, is obviously quiet as a shadow when she takes out Night King in the show, right? Yeah, the so show, quiet, we but, don't even know how she did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're like, the brightest flame casts the darkest shadows. And Arya's a dark shadow. 
Anyways, I don't think it is related to her, but it makes me think of her. Yeah, and and there's maybe something like like Melisandre and Arya in the show is maybe more a thing than it'll be in the books, but maybe it will be. I mean, yeah, that's actually interesting. Shadows are the servants of light, the children of fire. The idea that Arya does ends up doing something Melisandre wants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The more I describe this chapter, the more it's like really standing out to me as one of the best in the entire book. (laughs) I just love the the, the debate and the fact that we just can't get to answers here, and it just that's life. We don't have answers when it comes to moral philosophizing when it, when it is. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's straightforward. But most things in life aren't so straightforward, or at least things that aren't so straightforward are pretty common. Interestingly, given this whole servant of light, servant of shadow thing, when she's going through the actual moment of, of delivery, when she's having the babies coming out, she not only calls herself a champion of light in life, Davos notes that she's shining during that moment. So it is like she's kind of a glowing with light. So uh, that both is a uh, symbolic add-on to her own words, but it's also just supernatural, showing that maybe, well, she thinks she's a champion of light in life in part because, well, she's lighting up and, well, she's wor- you know, wielding fire and it's, it's part of her existence. It's part of uh, what, what's shown to her through her own perspective. Her zealotry also seems to lead her to grave seriousness when Davos mentions the so-called god of darkness who who to her, we know, means the great other, a being of whom we do not have a lot of understanding. But the name, because it's other, you know, that makes us think of the others, it's hard to not, which also in turn makes me think of all the overlapping magic. Yeah, it's hard not to think of them because of the name other, but also the great association with darkness that they both have, darkness and cold. Yeah, There's a couple of things there that you just can't help but associate them. Yeah, it's really, really tight. It's it's wonderful. And then, but it, it makes other connections, not just the long night, it's not just the others. Look at Jojen's misses on his green dreams. Quote, Melisandre saw another day in her flames as well. A morrow where Renly rode out of the south in his green armor to smash my host beneath the walls of King's Landing. Had I met my brother there, it might have been me who died in place of him. Right. So that's Stannis's quote there. And, and it, what I meant by Jojen in his green dreams is Jojen had all those green dreams that none of which were interpreted properly. Uh, and here we go. This is wrong. <laughs> had I met my brother there, it might have been me who died in place of him. Well, you didn't meet your brother there, but this is a morrow that is coming still. This is not uh, an alternate future that didn't happen. It's Tywin is going to smash your army in the back because uh, Sir Garland Tyrell will be wearing Renly's armor. And uh, that's going to, you know, that's coming in a couple of couple of book weeks here. So, and it's also evidence of both Stannis and Melisandre's hypocrisy. He rules out other possibilities, Stannis does, for Renly's fate. Meaning he's like, no, this was, you know, Stannis, she saw it in the flames, and so it was kind of written. That's it. But he also, by the same token, agrees that, no, Sir Davos, that's where you're wrong. Flames cast multiple shadows, and he's talking about multiple futures are possible. But here, he kind of contradicts himself. So, uh, sort of to summarize here, his denials are interesting, but perhaps not surprising. Because, well, that's just kind of kind of person he is. Um, but I'm also surprised that Melisandre seems to deny it. This is where, this is one that really baffles me. Quote, And Renly Baratheon, who was it who killed him? Her head turned beneath the shadow of the cowl. Her eyes burned like pale red candle flames. Not I. Liar. Davos was certain now. I mean, a few minutes later, she pulls back her robes and delivers a killer shadow child. Is she really going to pull the, oh, I I didn't do it. (laughs) Well, you get into this in a minute as well, but we also had a comment here um, from Joe Magician in there where he was wondering how Stannis 
how Stannis did this and if it was like astro projection with a little more behind it. And then he asks, who was in control of the shadow baby? Mel? Stannis itself? And yeah. so you have some more thoughts on that here. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's such a bold lie that maybe we should consider that it's not. I mean, the way Stannis makes it seem, I mean, it he he uh, it seems as if he was part of it and it was his desires, but it's the same thing where you look at uh, whether someone was an accomplice or not and yeah. whether they were involved. And Melisandre is clearly, clearly, uh, you know, liable or whatever for yeah. this death. But the way we, yeah, the way they break it down, no one takes responsibility. Davos is like, I didn't, it's not me. Melisandre's like, it's not me. Stannis is like, it's not me. But it's definitely, <laughs> like, it's all it can't be them. nobody. It's all of them. Yeah, I that's, agree. That's as simple as it is. I totally it, yeah. agree, yeah. I think you blame them all. I think they're all, they all have maybe not equal share. No, Davos the, the least. Yeah, yeah. So let's, I, so I was pondering whether we should, whether it's a lie or not, even though it sounds like such a bold lie that because it's so bold, like I said, maybe we should consider that it's not. And while pondering that question, I was uh, browsing our uh, flick group and Tree Girl had a really good take. She says, quote, they are Stannis's intentions, his desires in material form. Mel makes them come to life. Yes, but they belong to Stannis. And they maybe what she's saying is that they're acting on their own. She brings those desires to life and then they act on that. So they're not within Stannis's being when they happen, but they reflect how he feels. So that's why Stannis isn't actively participating, but it still looks like him and it's still his desire. And that's why Mel can say it's not her because it's his desires making this happen. If she just birthed the baby, it wouldn't just go kill Sir Courtney unless Stannis wanted that. Yeah, but she still agreed to birth the baby. Yeah, so I agree with point. you. That, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I, I, I know totally you agree. agree. I'm just trying to... You, but to make it clear is why we still make it, it's still very clear that Melisandre is culpable. Yeah. So this is, so obviously this is the main theme of this chapter, or a main theme of this chapter is responsibility. No one claims it. And well, (laughs) it's really well summarized here much earlier in the chapter. Quote, The Lord of Light willed that my brother die for his treason. Who did the deed matters not. Not to you, perhaps. Sir Courtney says that. And he cuts to the heart of it. The flaming heart of it. Hey. Oh. I've got my own flaming heart today. Yeah, Z's got that in Santa Fe. That's he right. Was I was just there. in Santa Fe. He just got back yesterday. That's right. So the flaming heart was all over Santa Fe. <laughs> uh, Stannis says it doesn't matter who did it. And maybe he's right because he's the lawful king. The king has a right to execute people who don't disobey or who do disobey. So this is, again, quibbling over the method of execution, not the actual execution. But Courtney suggests that quibbling over the method of execution does matter. And we brought that point up, too. So. Yeah, if you believe in some standard of honor or that supernatural assassinations are extrajudicious, i.e. shouldn't be allowed, then you see Sir Courtney's point. He says, it doesn't matter to you, but it matters to me. And that's what it boils down to. This is a matter of personal philosophy. Do you believe it matters who kills him and the method? Sir Courtney does, Thanos doesn't. And that's a big, that's what this, a lot of all of this hinges on is uh, whether or not, you know, is that disagreement, that moral disagreement, that very fundamental moral disagreement. And so, again, there's no right answer here. Um, I know which side I take. I think it's wrong, but uh, I, I don't have a super confidence in that. Uh, I love George, that George wrote it this way. It's one, of, uh, it's one of the grayest chapters. It's one of the best chapters for showing the grayness of, of morality, uh, even with the supernatural elements in play. And again, uh, Davos being our guide is just perfect. And Courtney even shows this, uh, how this conundrum fits so well and that we can't make decisions because he says, not to you, perhaps. <laughs> so yeah, there's even a little bit of leeway for 
him saying, well, it's a personal matter. It's a, it's a matter of opinion. No mayhaps, though. No, yeah, he didn't say mayhaps. He said perhaps. That's a good point. But let's look at the actual big moment when the shadow is born. God's pervert. <laughs> God's pervert, pervert us. <laughs> yeah, God's pervert us. God's preserve us, he whispered and heard her answering laugh, deep and throaty. Her eyes were hot coals, and the sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. Mm-hmm. Panting, she squatted and spread her legs. Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. Her cry might have been agony or ecstasy or both. And Davos saw the crown of the child's head push its way out of her. Two arms wriggled free, grasping. Black fingers coiling around Melisandre's straining thighs, pushing until the whole of the shadow slid out into the world and rose taller than Davos, tall as the tunnel, towering above the boat. He had only an instant to look at it before it was gone, twisting between the bars of the portcullis and racing across the surface of the water. But that instant was long enough. He knew that shadow as he knew the man who cast it. So this is corroboration. Both Kat and Davos see Stannis' face on a shadow here. And not a, long, not a lot of time has passed since Renly's death, so we get a little bit of information on these shadow babies, which is that they do not take very long to gestate, so to speak. Gestation may not be the right word, but it's the closest one I've got. Uh, we know pretty clearly because it's, you know, Davos gives, or Sir Courtney has given La Fortnite to respond to Stannis' demands. And in that time, well, this baby has grown maybe even in less time. Maybe it only took like a day or two, but didn't take long. So interestingly how tall it is. Notice it's really tall. And it's also tall in the candlelight in the tent. It's interesting, too, that Davos is, like, shocked. And Melisandre laughs at him, which is kind of strange. Like, <laughs> like eh, of course he's going to be shocked. What is she going to be thinking? Like, ha-ha, she, she were scared of it. Like, of course, it's freaking scary, I, man. I mean, to be fair, I laugh whenever I scare one of my roommates. <laughs> whenever I birth a shadow, I laugh at everybody. Yeah. Interesting, too, though, that... Uh, the way the shadow manifests, like it almost seems like it manifests in the tent when Kat sees it. But here it like, you know, runs down a tunnel. And it's, so it's kind of a little bit different the way it's delivered. But maybe that's just our perspective. Maybe it kind of comes through the tent wall and it, that just makes it look like it was birthed inside the tent. So there's a, also a point here which described the black blood that's running down her thighs. That also happens in A Dance with Dragons. In her chapter, and there's the same language of agony mixed with ecstasy. Quote. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. Strange voices called to her from days long past. You know, I think she's just going through menopause. <laughs> <laughs> she has babies in really in, in like a couple of days instead yeah. of nine months. You would get to menopause faster at that rate, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> much slower because she's quite old. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how this works. <laughs> so she says much later also that the wall is a hinge of the world. Is Storm's End maybe? I mean, an argument against it is that she says that the one she'll release at the wall are going to be pretty powerful, bigger than one she had released before. So it sounds like if they're both hinges, the wall is more powerful. And of course, it sort of makes sense that if it's a magical area, that makes sense why there'd be wards, because, you know, it's a more of a, a, a real threat. Are these wards like Bloodraven's Cave? 
Will it matter again? Will the wards on Storm's End matter later? I guess they didn't take any, uh, have any impact in Fagon taking the castle. I mean, he's not using supernatural means, so I don't suppose that would come up. But maybe that'll matter later. Maybe humanity will have to flee to Storm's End. I kind of doubt it. I kind of think that things will come to a head at Harrenhal. That's, uh, that's my headcanon. But if, if the undead push even farther south, they'd eventually get to Storm's End, and we'd have to see if these wards that Can keep I- out shadows could also keep out the others. Can I just give a quick shout out to Haley of the Manimals who released a Beastie Boys cover, Sabotage, Heron Hall. It's all uh, going down at Heron Hall. Yeah. <laughs> no shit went down at Heron Hall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, look That's up. That's a good track. The Heron video Hall is really Man- good. Look up too. Heron Hall Manimals and you'll find it. It's yeah, very catchy. It's, it's a full video. They did the whole Yeah, song. a whole music yeah. video. Running yeah, around New York great. trying to do some of the scenes just like the the, the, the original video. It's really good. Yeah, we've yeah. had Haley on this show too, as uh, on our Why We Love the An- uh, Animals episode. Yeah. yeah, anyways. Right on. So, either way, Things come in threes in this series quite a lot. Not just this series, right? Things come in threes in a lot of in a lot of entertainment. But we've only seen two children of the shadow so far. Not only did we mention that Melisandre seems to think she's going to send some shadows from the wall because of how powerful the wall is, this hinge concept. But a third, you know, just having the three. <laughs> so at least one more shadow coming from Melisandre, probably. But who's going to provide it? Who's going to give the life force for this shadow? John's undead, so I kind of doubt it'll be him. Stannis is already declared too weak, and he's not with her right now. Maybe someone on the wall. Maybe a wildling. Maybe Devin, who is, you know, like, uh, who is perhaps a bit like Stannis in that he's attracted to her, right? That's something that Melisandre thinks on in A Dance with Dragons, how she wants to keep him around because, you know, she thinks Davos' service is important and she thinks he's worth protecting. But uh, the fact that Devin is like kind of into her is maybe a clue that uh, he's going to be the one to give some of himself to make another shadow or two. <sighs> it's a huge coup. Um, this whole switch to Stannis, like so many men switching over. That's a big part of the aftermath of uh, not just Renly's death, but Storm's End switching. The Stormlands just don't have another option now with uh, both Robert and Renly gone. Um, gaining the Reachmen, though, that's a whole nother thing. We, we, there, it's briefly mentioned in this chapter that Stannis tries to send Sir Parman Crane, but it doesn't get to, to take the army at Bitterbridge, but Loras gets there first. So, being in mind of the switch, it's also interesting to reflect that they're not just switching to Stannis, they're switching to his religion, and that's a much bigger deal. That's something Sir Courtney points out, is like, how can you trust these people when they not only just switch kings so quickly, but they switch religion. That's supposed to be tends to be anyway, something that you just have for life. Uh, So, and at least switching your religion to other people, like from a perspective of people who've worshipped seven all their life, seeing Stannis switch to R'hllor is that's, that's tough for them to accept. And it's also, you know, a point of strategy for Tyrion to say, yeah, you know, get the faith on our side. Stannis is going to come here and burn the <laughs> burn the seven and all that. So between the, with the argument of Davos and Stannis, uh, so many other points to be made. There's another point that Joe makes here. Assuming that Penrose resisted because he thought Edric was about to be offed as a potential rival, but not burned because of his blood. Maybe he was holding out hope Renly named the boy his heir. Right, because Renly doesn't have his own sons. Maybe he was hoping that Edric Storm would be Renly's heir until you know he had his own son, and maybe he also thought that the Tyrells were going to come save him. But 
clearly that didn't happen. <laughs> but it was just, it's a reasonable expectation that he would uh, think the Tyrells would come. Interesting that Sanders gives arguments why single comment is a bad idea, but like I said, he, he was lying, kind of. He's known the whole time. Here's the quote. Sir Courtney was dead before he ever threw that glove. The flames do not lie, Davos. Yet they require me to make them true, he thought. It had been a long time since Davos Seaworth felt so sad. So that's the line I was talking about, about him feeling really sad. about a really sad line. Yeah, about what his king is making him do. This guy that he just trusts and follows with absolute loyalty is making him sad. And, well, Stannis is earning his place as a standout for showing quite a bit of decency and justice in this chapter He's all and some humanity. He's also made his best, most honorable man sad via all this, like, supernatural, this blood magic, this... Things that he thinks are dishonorable. That shouldn't be lightly passed over, right? Something that uh, is, is pointed out by Brienne and Kat, right? Consider Kat's oath to Brienne. You don't, you're not supposed to ask service of your followers that bring them into dishonor. And well, Stannis has apparently, had, has apparently forgotten about that, or at least doesn't see it as dishonorable, despite how uncomfortable so many of his men are with it. So that's pretty tough. <laughs> that's pretty tough. And it's it's the hypocrisy is a big part of it too. It isn't just the, the the supernatural, but just the fact that Stannis seems to be in denial about so many things and inconsistent about so many things. And a lot of these concerns, though, to be fair, a lot of these concerns are going to be sort of erased or at least dialed back when Stannis kind of changes his tune. When he sails for the Wall later on, that's going to be a big turn. That's like ah, respect. Okay, you're doing things right now. You were on the wrong track. Now you're on the right track, but. <laughs> we kind of know, or at least think we know, that he's going to get on the wrong track again because, well, if he burns his daughter, well, that's the wrong track. I mean, let's be clear. There's there's no two ways about it. and There's, there's almost no way Davos is going to agree with Stannis if that happens. So that was probably the turning point much later where Davos will finally say, I need to follow a new bird. I need my own, I need to switch away from Proudwing here and go to, I don't know, Jon Snow or something instead. That's far from now, and we'll see. I think I mentioned maybe also that Stannis, maybe I didn't, whatever. Stannis mentions the concept of good men in service to a bad king when referring to Joffrey, which is cool because that's also brought up by Varys much later in uh, Kevin's chapter when he's, you know, killing him. <laughs> so that kind of, uh, that point gets brought up here as well. But that was cool. The second time we've referenced Varys is Barry saying something is killing Kevin and, and company. I know, right? So in, the, many in, things. In, this ep, in this episode, I mean. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of neat how, like, because it's a similar concept, killing a kind of a, a person in a key position, like Varus takes out Kevin because he's doing a good job and because he's in the way. Yeah. And that's kind of what Court, Courtney is doing. He's doing a good job holding the castle and Stan needed, needed him out of the way. In, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and the killing was pretty shady in both cases. It's like but coming Varys, out of the shadows. Yeah, but Varys did not need a shadow baby. Nor no magic, want but one. Uh, certainly <laughs> subterfuge and secret tunnels and evilly trained children. <laughs> Joe Magician with a great question. Interesting thought. So if the shadow babies drain Stannis, do they drain Mel too, but no one notices because of her glamour? We don't know what she really looks like in general. Maybe she's not quite as old as she looks, but from repeated shadow babies, she's become withered. Good point. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there is some pretty strong evidence that she's old. It could be both. Maybe that, you know, maybe there's some drain on her, but also she's hiding her age. Yeah. Which also like, let's say we, whatever, um, she looks a certain amount of it old in the show. 
we could maybe have her age. Like maybe she is not that old, but that's still incredibly old. Mm. But it could make it make more sense for people who have certain theories about her. Along the same lines, uh, Stefan B asked a really good question, which is our that or at least points out that shadow babies must be a product of female shadow binders. Oh, male shadow binder can't do this. Uh, one would assume you probably can't use like shadow sperm <laughs> to make you know to put it in a non-shadow uh, binding woman. And yeah, I was wondering that as well. Yeah, because when you were talking about like you know whose shadow would be worse, or maybe someone in the chat was yeah. worse, even worse than Stannis's. You know, they were talking about how John's shadow would be or. Oh, All he's that. or something. Yeah, Ooh. but think about Arya's shadow. Ooh. Or I was thinking about Gregor Clegane before oh he was Robert yeah. Strong. <laughs> anyway, it's just the, the worst shadows that you could have. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I don't know if I think there could be. We also wonder. I, like, I don't know that I think all shadow binders have to be able to birth shadow babies. I don't think they do. No, I don't think they do either. It's certainly not. A, it's not a Reloris thing either. I think it's a shadow binder thing, which, which Melisandre seems to blur that line because Westeros doesn't know the difference. But we have some evidence that. Yeah, yeah Rolorism and shadow binding aren't necessarily yeah. connected. She's directly. a red priestess and a shadow binder. Yeah, which is, you know, red priests aren't all shadow binders. Yeah, so that's, yeah, yeah. this is a very important But my question is, do you think, are all shadow binders of Rolor? I don't think so. I don't think I don't all think of so. them. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think Quaith is. Yeah, I don't think binder. so either. So, yeah. Uh, so. Cool. Uh, I like that. It's funny that the um, term is shadow baby. The fandom coined that term. Um, one day it'll be fun to compile all these terms that we all use interchangeably that don't actually appear in the books like Fagon, Shadow Baby, you know, things like that. The portcullis goes all the way to the bottom and the bars are too closely spaced for even a child to squeeze through, Davos thinks. And so child to squeeze through and it is a Shadow Baby. So, ah, that fits nicely. You wonder too, Stefan B asks, you know, would the Shadow behave differently or more powerfully if there's lots of light? Like, could they have done this during the day? You know? Probably not, but it's interesting. A lot of people point to uh, a lot of quotes in this uh, in this chapter, Generated Love. One in particular, she was red and terrible and red. <laughs> that was so good. And Sherry Tedens wants us to shout out, are you afraid I'll piss on your burning sword and put it out? <laughs> yeah, burning swords. He, he knows it's not real. <laughs> Another really important point here, Stan is drinking water. So a lot of people point to that as like, well... This shows he's just too stuck up. He won't even drink wine. Other people think, no, that's a good thing. He never drinks. It's a, it's a sign of his discipline, his strength. It reminds me of Donald Noy pointing to the different types of metal for the Baratheon brothers. And I think that Stannis is cool, cold water. The way he says, you know, I show them cold water and they don't believe me. And Robert shows them a cup of piss and they call it wine. Well, I actually think Robert is, is kind of like ale. He's like this, you know, rough and tumble common man's drink. He likes fighting and he's really popular with the commons. Renly also very popular with the commons, but he does it from more of a like charismatic upscale, like, you know, well-dressed noble, like perfection image guy. So he's more like wine <laughs> and Stannis is water. And he also says this quote, if someone said I had magicked myself into a boar to kill Robert, likely they would believe that as well. Okay, but would they not believe you magicked yourself into a shadow to kill yeah. Renly? Because that's more unbelievable, but it's true. And magicking into a boar, you got skin changing, y'all. That's nothing. <laughs> magicking into a boar, that's entirely possible in this setting. So I believe it. <laughs> so it's fine for the commons to believe it. <laughs> we would also be remiss not to drop this quote, a fave of mine and many, many others. It's like an, icon- an iconic line. It is such an iconic line. Only Renly could vex me so with a piece of fruit. He brought his doom on himself with his treason. 
But I did love him, Davos. I know that now. I swear. I will go to my grave thinking of my brother's peach. <laughs> I just have to say, it's, I, I think it has grown in humor as emojis have gotten more popular. Because oh, of peach emoji. Because peaches are, are, are indicative of an ass. <laughs> so I, it's... it's and, I will go to my grave thinking of my brother's ass. <laughs> yeah. I just, I had, it was funny in the, in the first place. Wait a minute. Radley's the one who was into men, not Stannis. <laughs> yeah. Which is also why it's always been extra funny, I think, to people Radley with his peach, with his ass. Yeah. So but, it's so yeah. it's incredible because, yeah, it's super funny, even without that part. <laughs> but that makes it funnier. But he's also saying, this is also just pointing out Stannis' denial. He's tormented by Renly's death, and he's projecting that it's the peach he won't forget. It's really the Renly he won't forget, the little brother of his. He says, uh, he says, he gets quiet and says, I know that I loved him now. You know, I realize that now. And he's having, we know he's having the bad dreams. He's maybe dreaming of Sir Courtney, too, though. I would think that Renly's death is going to, you know, be more prominent in his head. That's the one that troubles him more. Uh, Nina Friel points out that Courtney is right on the money when when he yells at Alistair Florence saying, you know, who, you know, what God will you have tomorrow and what king will you follow tomorrow? And it is Alistair Florent who, independent of Stannis' permission, tries to arrange a surrender after the loss of Blackwater Bay so he can have his keep back. And of course, what's he get for that? He gets burned for that. Speaking of advisors, Stannis isn't super happy with. He doesn't want to hear Salas' advice. He cuts Davos off when Davos is talking about what Salas had to say. And it's funny because Stannis is like, I won't trust a Lysine Brigand, even though he doesn't trust his lords either. And Davos is a smuggler. So, <laughs> but I really want to know what he was actually going to say. What was Salas' advice going to be? Uh, we know that Salas advised going straight for King's Landing, just like Davos and some others. But this was something a little more specific, but we don't know what it is. If anyone has thoughts, Drop them in the chat, y'all. If Stannis somehow survives everything, Archmaester Rennie wonders if he might take the black, since this line casually suggests it. The day I need counsel from a Lysine Brigand is the day I put off my crown and take the black. It used to be a popular idea in the fandom that Stannis would take the black after either John was revealed to be ahead of him, which I doubted, or for reasons unforeseen, which I also doubted, but less so. But the reason I doubt that this would happen is uh, I'm dubious there will even be a Night's Watch at the end of, or a wall, maybe. And, and Stannis also is not exactly portrayed as someone willing to kind of bend the knee to surrender. I think he'd rather die than take the black. But the thing is, he does go to the wall and he will lose his crown. That's true. And he sort of he doesn't directly take the black. So I guess you could see it as he's serving the Night's Watch, even though he's not literally taking the black. So I, I could see that's an interpretation. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he won't be king anymore. And just to add weight to that theory, it's, you know, the TV show gives us his death. And even though I very much doubt that's the way he's going to die, the fact that he dies at all is, is enough to add some weight to, to the fact that he won't live to take the black later. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, that that he should have taken the advice of the, quote, Lysine Brigand and Davos and these others. He's just so prideful about, oh, I can't have it said that I was defeated at Storm's End. Well, if he takes the Iron Throne within a, within a couple weeks after that, then so what? If people say you def were defeated at Storm's End, but that you took the capital, I don't think that's going to be such a big deal that they're like, oh, you lost at Storm's End. Yeah, but y'all, I took the throne. And once he takes the throne, he could just send more men back down to go ahead and take Storm's End after all. He just comes right back a few weeks later. So, I mean, he, he does express that he is concerned about being taken in the rear. Yes, he is. He is a little bit concerned you know, it's, about it's, that. It's pride and, and, you know, his status and all that and how people perceive him, I think, more so is what he's expressing. But he, he, there definitely is the chance that someone could catch him. Well, Davos makes that point that all the more reason to go now, he says that 
if you're worried about them catching us in the rear, all the more reason to take the city as soon as possible before they have a chance to do that. Yeah. And in fact, the delay does cause that to happen. I mean, in, in no way do I agree with uh, Stannis and Melisandre's decision here. Yeah. <laughs> so the, I brought this up earlier, but just as a reminder, they waited a week to, to hear what Sir Courtney was going to do to give him time to decide whether to surrender or not. But let's also forget how much rumor there is about this incident in general. Many think that it was Cat or Brienne. Quote, hers was the hand that slew the king. A lie, Sir Courtney said. I knew Brienne when she was no more than a girl playing at her father's feet in Evenhall Hall, Evenfall Hall. And I knew her still better when the Evenstar sent her here to Storm's End. She loved Renly Baratheon from the first moment she laid eyes on him. A blind man could see it. Also, let's recall that some blamed a camp follower, right? And it bears a striking resemblance to the death of Septon Moon, a character in Fire and Blood with huge parallels to both Robert and Renly. He was murdered in the midst of his army, also having his throat cut. Well, for more on that parallel, check out our 2019 New Year's Day Fire and Blood livestream, as well as our Faithless Man Iron Bank Fire and Blood livestream. Rob Swelzel asks, does that skin changer with the boar up north show up soon after this line about uh, magicking into a boar? No, that's Borak as his name. He does not show up till Dance with Dragons. But we know there's a precedent for this. So it's still pretty relevant, even though it's not the exact timing. Well, that was a lot of uh, a lot of meat on that chapter. It's going to go down as one of the more important ones of the book, I think, um, after having done all this analysis and seeing all y'all th- y- y'all's thoughts on it. Y'all, y'all had trouble with that. Y'all lives. But this is shaping up to be one of our longest episodes of all of Valerius. So let's keep moving. Go to John 5. The gang meets Corin, a.k.a. the notorious half-hand, ready to die. Quote. The call came drifting through the black of night. This is such a setup. The horn blasts have always been a setup since they were introduced as a plot device. Like They're like Pavlov's horn. Every time we, someone mentions a horn, we salivate at the idea of there being three blasts because it means the others. And we want it to be the others because we want to see them on screen. We want to go further into the mystery of them. We want answers. But frankly, we'd even settle for additional questions to ponder because we love those too, even when we don't have answers. Well, questions are fun. We just get to think about it. It gives us options. This ominous start also sets the tone for a character whose placement in the story seems clear enough. Even George R. R. Martin, the breaker of tropes, went for the more straightforward case with this one. Quote, We can only die. Why else do we don these black cloaks but to die in defense of the realm? So in a series where almost no one seems safe, everything about Corrin Halfhand screams short-lived character. He lasts longer than Sir Courtney Penrose, but if they saw each other at orientation in the afterlife, assuming that's, that's what they have, right? Afterlife orientation? Yeah, they have the, you know, the seven heavens. And so there's seven <laughs> orientations. I imagine they'd look at each other and respectfully nod to each other as if to say, hey, you too were a short-lived A Song of Ice and Fire badass and in the same book even. And the raven gets in on the, uh, the evidence of uh, Corrin's fate here. Die, the raven muttered, pacing, wrong, pacing along Mormont's shoulders. Die, 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 die. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Be a little direct there. This is part of the point, though. The raven just likes to gain. It does. <laughs> just throw in its dice. <laughs> die, die. Five dice, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, yeah, this is part of the point, though. The, the people dying off, uh, it's, it's like the changing of the guard, in part because Westeros itself is entering a new era. Much of human society is built on the older, taking advantage of the younger whether literally older in years or older by benefit of long-held power structures, right? Like Lannisters are really powerful, even the younger ones, because of all the power they inherit. But even, but the big Lannisters even pick on the small Lannisters. This is just a 
It's a long-standing tradition of sorts from passed down from generation to generation. Real change comes when the young turn the tables on the old and make sacrifices of not just the old, but the old ways, rather than becoming fodder for the increasingly corrupt machines that uh, so many who came before have been running. This is uh, Karth. We bring back Karth is like a city-sized version of this lesson because those the machines that these societies grow over time, they are fueled with blood. This is the beauty of Corin Halfan because in some ways, though he's as tropey as they come, he's used perfectly in the narrative in a manner so well-fitted to the bloody themes of this book. Old powers are indeed awakening, as he himself says, and he's going to be kind of sacrificed for the sake of fighting the perils that come with this new era. Though unlike the vast majority, he's going to embrace it. He will do what must be done. He will be a man of the Night's Watch. And men of the Night's Watch give their all for the realm, whether it be life or honor even. They must give it all. No character embodies this concept more than he, I'd say. Were he a knight, he'd be a true knight. The real world version of Corrin is, I don't even know, he's... he's there's just some just a great guy that or even woman would fit as well just someone that you would look up to that you would always follow that you would never question that you just have so much belief in so rather than pursuing cynical means of power causing great suffering to others to prolong the life of something that does not deserve life meaning the old ways of living meaning the old beliefs of people like the maesters who downplay the supernatural which is clearly coming Corrin Halfhand tries to avoid death. You know, he's a person, he's human, but he accepts it. And the certainty of his beliefs perhaps make that all easier to swallow. Meaning that he can accept his own death because he has such conviction in his, his duty. He can either be said to have a great pride in following the vows of the Night's Watch or that he has no pride at all because he's so willing to give up his own honor and his own life. So I would say the latter. Uh, and this is part of why John has to be with him. This is part of why the narrative takes this turn to learn these lessons, but to also have the proverbial torch passing, but in Martin style, with John forced to sacrifice him in near literal fashion. John has to kill Corrin to move on, to do the things that he has to do. And Corrin is a willing sacrifice in that. John continues to puzzle over the dragon glass cache. Most of the rangers are kind of, they're like, yeah, that's nice, but they don't really make use of it. As I said in the last uh, John chapter, even John uh, thinks about how Sam's going to like the horn. Because it's old and Sam loves, quote, even old worthless things. <laughs> so, but I don't know that that horn is useless or worthless. We'll see. That's uh, we got a long time before we find out what that happens, but I can't wait. As John is considering his new semi-magical items, the half-hand speaks of Mance leading his people to some as well. Something meaning, huh. quote, He is seeking something in the high, cold places. He is searching for something he needs. Something? Mormont's raven lifted its head and screamed. The sound was sharp as a knife in the closeness of the tent. Some power. So while Corrin embraces death, he's also embracing the supernatural here, which is really interesting because you mostly have people just downplaying it or denying it or anything. This is a, a, an unusual character to have be at the forefront of this, an older ranger. But in other ways, that makes a lot of sense because he's been out there. He's been in the north. He's been beyond the wall so much, he's seen things. The rangers know things that the rest of the watch don't, or the rest of the world doesn't. So, Mance searching for some power is information that Corrin just accepts at face value. He doesn't question the absurdity of such a thing. Like, some power? Uh, come on, that's ridiculous. Mormont's kind of like, eh. But Corrin is like, no. 
natural confidence and authority. It even gives John pause. It gives us readers pause. It, it makes us think, well, this is, this is serious. Okay, I was gonna say, how can you ever, how can you see a skin changer and not believe in magic? Yeah, right. <laughs> I you just straight up. It's, it's I, I, I feel like Gior has to have, right? I would think so. Maybe not. I mean, maybe not. it's not clear that John is. Yeah, John doesn't know. So of course well, that I happens just, while he's with Corin. Yeah, but... I guess it's not clear to me how much Gior was a ranger. Yeah. I mean, but he, you have that's, to think Corin has. Yeah, that's so a good point. Yeah, Corin's older. Corin's like 50-ish or something. Yeah, and he's older. So you, he has, so I, I don't know if I think Gior has, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, Gior was definitely old when he got to the to the wall, so he may have never been a, a ranger. ranger. Yeah. yeah. He's probably straight on the leadership track. <laughs> he ranged close. Yeah. Either way, this is also interesting in, in that while Westeros is having its own changing of the guard with all this turmoil and, and new dynasties emerging and new houses emerging and other houses being shut down, this old-timer, Corrin, is in the forefront of adjusting to the New World Order where... The trees have eyes again. I mean, it's 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 amazing. And and we know even more than Corin does. Corin is fully confident, but we know even better than he does how right he is. And that's also the beauty of Corin. He's famous for being a total badass warrior, but the only time we see him fight, it's when he's trying to lose on purpose while making it look good. But he says so many things perfectly. It it, it doesn't it doesn't amount to his his badassery doesn't isn't what impresses us. It impresses the other characters on screen. But what impresses us is how many things he says so perfectly. He's like an oracle of purpose and duty. He could write a book called The Zen of Rangers of the Night's Watch. That's the impression he leaves on John, and that's the value he, he's instilled in John by being so succinct and direct and having all that paired with his really extreme position of authority and reputation, just the fact that he's someone that everybody listens to. So his decision to ask for John, he says, I want John to come with me is really interesting in the light of all this because it might be his belief in the supernatural that's driving that decision. Quote, The old gods are still strong beyond the wall, the gods of the first men and the Starks. So, yeah, that's really something, right? I want to consider that why did John get picked, right? Besides the, the supernatural element, Dregal thinks that maybe Corrin had this whole infiltrate the wildlings idea in mind already. He may have been a plan he was considering, and John was a good candidate because he's young. You need someone young to be convincing to switch over. It's just hard to believe that the half-hands veterans would switch sides. Like, they've been 20 years killing wildlings. Like, half-hand himself asks it, he's like, what would happen if I surrendered to y'all? Like, oh, we'd kill you. We'd torture you to death. But John, they're willing to believe. So that's a really interesting idea that uh, maybe... Corrin was already thinking of that. It's possible. Uh, Archmaester Rennie and others think that it's ghosts. That's the reason that, that Corrin recognizes that John is a skin changer, even if he doesn't. And that's something he wants with him. Yeah, that's um, what I think. Yeah. I've, 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 I definitely feel like who wouldn't want a, a dire wolf with him in, on this mission? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And indeed, ghost comes up really big <laughs> in this mission. So, yeah. A couple thoughts from Joe. Such a huge upheaval in John's storyline. It's similar to Game of Thrones. He's been things have been going kind of slow for John in the first book until he had a, all of a sudden he has to fight a white. Then all the, then the pace picks up and then it slows down again. Similar structure here. A slow walk into the forest, deeper and deeper, slowly getting more creepy. More and more supernatural elements are revealed. You get Craster. You get the fist of the first men. You get the buried dragon glass. And then the half hand shows up and boom, he's off 
in the mountains hunting and being hunted. And that's just a big, big change. And of course, as important as uh, it is for us to consider things that we know this based on the fact that this is a reread, well, the wall is, is demand right now. And Winterfell is about to be demand as well, which is really huge because as we know from history, anytime the wildlings actually got past the wall, Winterfell stopped them. That's two, it's like two lines of defense. Usually kings beyond the wall are stopped by the wall, but some have gotten past, but all of them were beaten by the north. None of them got any farther than that. So right now, there's, it's just wide open. Some more wildling standouts are named in this chapter. Uh, just kind of cool to get the get that thrown out there. Rattleshirt, Harmed Dog's Head, Alfin Crow's Killer. All of them are dead now, though. <laughs> great, uh, great quote here from Ed. <laughs> Got to get that in. Yeah, there are worse ways to die than warm and drunk. I knew a brother drowned himself in wine once. It was a poor vintage, though, and his corpse did not improve it. You drank the wine? It's an awful thing to find a brother dead. You'd have need of a drink as well, Lord Snow. Well, it's not just funny. Uh, it's probably foreshadowing, huh? Yes, for Danto's Holler. <laughs> yeah. And in particular, actually, it's it also, I guess, more foreshadowing for John himself. Yeah, probably, because Ed that, might be one of those the, who finds yeah, John Yeah, that, it's, it's that. But for me... It, were, yeah, it works for other things. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's what Joffrey threatens Danto's with, that he's going to drown him in a cask of wine. Mm, yes, so, right on. It didn't yeah. happen to him, but <laughs> people choose to do it, apparently. Mm. Well, I guess, I don't know if he drowned. I, oh, it says drown himself in wine, I guess. Yeah. It seems hard to do. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, another Dolorous Ed quote here. Dolorous Ed opined that glass knives were about as useful as nipples on a knight's breastplate. But John was not so certain. Yeah, John thinks Neither nipples was on a HBO. breastplate are really useful. Yeah, HBO thought so, too. <laughs> So John at least has a sense that these knives are useful. He doesn't know why. He doesn't exactly understand it, but he can be pretty sure he'll learn eventually. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Joe Magician just had a thing where he said Eamon ending up in the cask of rum. Oh, yeah. Eamon did end up in a cask of rum. Oh, That's right. To preserve his body. That's so sad, Joe. <laughs> Good catch by Joe. You're laughing. <laughs> Michael Clarfeld points out that Cora and Davos have a nice parallel. Maimed hand. Killed to show false loyalty, right? Both, both, um, yeah, they were both killed. Davos wasn't actually killed, but one member in uh, Wyman Manderley pretends to have him killed to make it look like he's uh, fall, uh, in bending the knee to the Lannisters. And of course, Corrin is actually killed, so John can join the Wildlings. Good catch by Michael. Good job, Michael. Good to hear from you. Nadina, I mean to say, Nina wonders about Corrin's heritage. The QH name is only an Ironborn thing, uh, it, it is, as far as we've seen. Unless Corrin isn't one, then we do have one example. But we have Corrin, Corwin, Corred Hor. Corrin is a Corwin is a is a Volmark, I believe. And there's a Corrin. Uh, uh, I forget what name that one was, but there is another Corrin Ironborn. So it seems kind of neat that he might actually be Ironborn, which would be such a that kind of personality coming from the Ironborn is a little, would be a little bit of a surprise. But it does fit. I don't know that we'll ever learn it. I mean, he is a badass. Yeah, and and even though we know how he lost his three fingers on his on his right hand. And make, I mean, think about the axe. I know. Yeah, it was an axe that took it out. You, but... you think he would be better at the axe throwing if he was an ironborn. Yeah, yeah. The Nina points out that that's, it, it seems like a finger dance comparison or yeah. parallel. But that's cool. I was like, I, I just want to also want to point out, I really admired the description. Corrin's has really good posture. Yeah, it's straight like, as a spear. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> okay, let us move on to 
Tyrion 10. The gang plan shades disguise, aka the one where Varys dreams of the voice. It's also the one with the full Tysha story. It's really a chapter with memorably awful childhood parts. Not only does Shay recount abusive treatment at the hands of her father, and speaking of childhood parts, Varys' memory of how he was cut and lost his parts. Then finally, this is the one with the story of, like I said, Tysha, but not just Tysha. Tyrion was a victim in that situation and an abuser. So, bleh. fittingly, this chapter begins with a line spoken by another young person who is being terribly abused by the elders in his family as well, Lancel. The queen intends to send Prince Tommen away. So Tyrion agrees with Cersei's general idea, but plays this power game where he kind of takes over the mission by sending his men to, to run it his way. Now, it's also important to note here that Tyrion doesn't trust Bronn. He sends uh, Sir Jaslyn Bywater and says that, you know, I'll promote you to Lord if you do this well. And Tyrion's like, hey, you could make me, or Bronn's like, you could make me a Lord. I'll do it. And of course, as we know, Bronn will become a Lord later and he's going to be Lord of a neighboring castle to uh, Rosby. It'll be Stokeworth. Now, was I not just talking about how themes are really emerging lately in this book? Surely there are several that we didn't highlight for y'all. Last time it was pride and there was still some pride in this episode. But like I said at the beginning, this time it's the awakening of old powers. Even Varys, a guy who hates the supernatural, whose story has almost nothing to do with supernatural stuff. This is the one time he does talk about supernatural stuff that infects, that, that uh, impacts him. His supernatural origin story. Well, the voice, quote, the flames turned blue, and I heard a voice answer his call, though I did not understand the words they spoke. Yeah, one can suppose the sorcerer casting the spell did understand the voice. So here's my question. Did George R. R. Martin tell Dan and Dave that Varus would eventually find the sorcerer and get his revenge, and they just moved it up on the timeline to season two? Or did they just completely add that on? Also, what languages does Varys speak? Oh, good question. Probably a lot of them. Oh, he may not have spoken all of them back then. Yeah, back then, but maybe still. not, because I feel like Valyrian is one of the ones I, f- I feel like he would be most likely to have a a, a smattering, at least a, a some. Yeah. I feel. I, yeah, that's a good point. And so if 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 that was Valyrian, anyways, we, no way for us to really know right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we have this quote. Yep, do it. Yet I still dream of that night, my lord, not of the sorcerer, nor his blade, nor even the way my manhood shriveled as it burned. I dream of the voice, the voice from the flames. Was it a god, a demon, some conjurer's trick? I could not tell you, and I know all the tricks. So real quick, before I get into the meat of that, I want to point out the difference of trick versus spell was raised at the beginning of this episode with Quaith and the, the trick in the, uh, of the, uh, the, the fire ladder guy. And she's like, that's not a trick. And uh, that's because magic is returning. So mm, she knows all the tricks or he says, I know all the tricks, but does he know all the spells? No, he does not. So he's pretty that's but but on the other hand, that is kind of evidence that it was really a spell and not a trick. A couple things about that. Well, one, it came, you know, when Varus was young, which means magic was still in the world, even though it was less powerful. We could imagine that maybe if this that sorcerer cast that spell today that it would work better, maybe? Maybe the voice would offer more? And given that question, what was the sorcerer getting? I mean, it's just a voice. So all he could get is information, right? That's all you can communicate by talking, right? I don't know what information, but it seems like that's all he could have gotten. So maybe, maybe Varus is lying about all this just as a way to make Tyrion confident that he's truly, truly opposed to Stannis. Just like, look, 
this is the kind of story that'll really make Tyrion confident that I am not playing both sides, at least when it comes to Stannis. Which is an important thing for Varys to do, make himself, make everybody know that he's on their side, because there's plenty of reason to doubt that he's on their side. So I kind of wonder, too, like the voice from the flames, is it simply like the audio version, audiobook version of, of fire reading? Like Melisandre stares in the flames and she gets ideas and, and sees things. This sorcerer throws a penis in the flames and hears things? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just to be clear. <laughs> hey, I didn't write it. <laughs> so the problem uh, with this you know, oh, sorry, there's an idea here that um, maybe this is sort of like a glass candle thing, like a glass candle is frozen fire, and this is fire. So maybe it's sort of the same basic engine. But the problem here is that uh, the voice, if it was another human speaking, then Varus probably wouldn't have been so terrified to the point that it's the thing he remembers most. He remembers the voice more than the pain of being cut, which really tells you the voice is chilling, which really tells you it's probably not human. I would uh, like to bring up, Will Mossy says, uh, the voice isn't necessarily the only thing that happened. Could be the voice of the great other doing something else, or just in general, the idea that, like, the voice could be like, yes, it's as you command, you know, whatever. Mm. Uh, they could, it could be something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, so, either way, that's that would maybe be an argument against it being kind of like a glass candle situation because if that's like some being from beyond, well, I doubt they have a glass candle. <laughs> They're just using some other means to communicate. Glass candles seem like uh, things rooted in the real world, not in the nether voids of wherever these beings exist. So let's talk about Shay for a minute. She impresses both character and reader with her extremely just casual recognition of Varus in a disguise that would have fooled just about anyone. Like Varus is like, whoa. <laughs> she explains that it's survivor skill that all sex workers need. They don't all have it, but they certainly, as she puts, it's important for them to have it. Now, Arya is going to acquire these skills as well, both not just Shay's skills, but Varys's. So keep that in mind. So all these themes of identity, both thematic and literal, as in, well, disguises, as in like literal disguising your identity, will continue with Arya's next chapter, right? With Jock and Hagar and all that. So will this theme of Soup, of all things, soup. <laughs> it's a subtle theme to be sure, but tasty. Allow me to explain, my lovely lords and ladies, friends and fellow historians and lovers of soup and stews, of which I am one. But not the poop soup loop. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Ari's going to have her weasel soup moment soon. And in this chapter, we have a much less ominous voice than the one Varus here so long ago is introduced here. It's so Simon Silvertongue, future member of A Pot of Soup. Iron coins and silver tongues. And he's just as screwed as the victims of the weasel soup incident. I mean, seriously, how doomed is a guy who tries to blackmail Tyrion, son of Tywin? <laughs> Quote. My singer may never sing again now, she teased. You scared the voice from him. A little fear will help him reach those high notes. She closed the door to their bedchamber. You won't hurt him, will you? <laughs> well, yeah, he's going to hurt him. <laughs> like I said, he ends up in soup. Part of the tragedy here, uh, not of the singer, but of Shay, is that that ability she showed to just recognize Varus, Tyrion could really use that in his, like, group of helpers like Braun and, and Baris and these others like if he could employ her that would be really useful surely she has other skills uh, along those lines that would be helpful but 
if not for Tywin and Cersei, well, really, a lot of Westerosi society is not so happy with the idea of a sex worker having such a high post. But it has clearly been done. Tyrion's own grandfather, Titos, famously and openly had a sex worker for a lover that he dressed in his f- former wife's jewelry. And, and I mean, he wasn't respected very well for he it. He was not, though. You're right. But he uh, did do it. But yeah. <laughs> in this scene... However, Varys won't even spill secrets in front of her. He's like, let's go talk about this elsewhere, even though he surely knows that Tyrion might just tell her anyway. Also, in relation to the singer's stew, remember, that's what it gets called, (laughs) singer's stew. He says that uh, there's a mention of how his tongue has turned to lead, which is, you know, it's a silver tongue. And that, to me, is a a reference to the old uh, mafia phrase plato o plomo which is silver or lead you either accept the bribery and fall under the mafia's sway or they kill you <laughs> and that's kind of what simon silvertongue is faced with here he either has to accept Tyrion's offer of pretending not to know him and uh, keeping his mouth shut or Tyrion's going to kill him and well we know how that goes but this is also really tragic and again i don't really care about simon but when Tyrion kills shay he's got simon's song running through his head. Ooh. Shay, uh, the idea of sending Shay to the kitchens, we, we broached the subject a little bit earlier. Tyrion's just blind to how bad this is, to this suggestion. Like, she really, really doesn't want to do this. And he just doesn't understand what he's asking of her. He just doesn't get it. Uh, she's willing to do it because, I mean, she doesn't really have much choice. And that's a big part of their dynamic is that she pretty much has to do everything he says, even though he he tries to act like they have some equity in their relationship, but we both know they don't really. He hits her because he can't stand to be mocked, and she mocked him. He he was in, he was insulted, and that's that touches on his uh, you know deepest traumatic uh, beliefs about himself and from his childhood. But still, of course, he's like, "Why did I hit her? That's terrible. Why did I do that?" But Shay also is is also while as smart as she is, she's also showing some naivete here. She's like, "You shouldn't be as scared of your father." And he's like, are you crazy? (laughs) Of course I should be scared of my father. And you should too. But she's not even, not only is she not afraid of Tywin, she's not really afraid of the the crowds getting angry. She just seems to be, to think that Tyrion is exaggerating or just, I'm not really sure. But this whole idea of him being, how he can't stand to be mocked, especially people he loves, that's going to come back big time when she goes into her, when she testifies against him and brings up my giant and how he wanted to be called that. And boy, that's bad for him. He feels so mocked at trial. So Varys breaks it down and is like, no, you can't do this. You can't send her to the kitchens. He just understands it so much better. He understands people of all levels of society much better than Tyrion does. And, and Tyrion is pretty good at reading people. It's just he's, he's really good at reading people who are more on his, of his social status or at least close to it and not so much people who are far beneath him. But again, Varys gets this really well and has a much better suggestion, bring her in as a maid to Lollys. And that does work out pretty well. And we'll be seeing her in that role a little bit later. So let's talk about Taisha. So Tywin's evil parenting. It's just so clear how much it had crushed Tyrion. Like, we already knew that to this point, but we didn't know how bad it was. Like, nothing we had read about Tywin to this point remotely approaches how bad uh, the, the level of what this Taisha incident even though there are plenty of pretty bad things in Tyrion's uh, past brought on by Tywin that have nothing to do with this. But this is why Tyrion is so worried about his father, is what he did what he did to Tysha, and so he's, it's fair for him to worry about what he'll do to Shay. 
this is also what happens to uh, to Cersei in Dance of the Dragons. That's what Tyr- Tywin did to his father's sex worker lover. He made her walk naked through the streets. I want to know what y'all think. Will Tyrion ever find Tysha? I personally don't think so. I don't think so. Shay doesn't think so either. All right. But I want to hear if you guys do. I'm a big fan in general of mysteries, questions that just aren't answered. Yeah. That's that's life. There's got to be a few. Yeah. yeah. You don't know. I mean, that's not even like they're not big mysteries. Sometimes it's just like, what happened to that person? Yeah. You never, you don't know. You never see him again. Yeah. Yeah, and, I agree. There's got to be some of that. Or, I mean, for George to keep the reality. Especially the in a medieval world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like today with like, it happens today. You have, we have Facebook and we have phones and all that. And you can still just, someone just falls off the face of the earth. It's true. Uh, so here's an interesting uh, little quote that Joe Buckley grabbed. She's my sister. The man who kills his own blood is cursed forever in the sight of gods and men. Well, <laughs> what about killing your father there, Tyrion? <laughs> so is that meant to be a little foreshadowing or this groundwork? Not sure. So as Joe says, adding on to the Taiwa, uh, the Taiwa? <laughs> I combined Taisha with Tywin there. Uh, more thoughts on Taisha from Joe. This is the most direct examination of his time with Taisha we get from Tyrion. He all but admits to himself here that he doesn't believe he can be loved, that no one can love him, and that Shay is an actress who wants to move up in the world. But he's going along with it anyway. He, he's helped along by Shay being far from subtle this time around. Perhaps she worries that her chance is slipping away if Stannis comes and executes Tyrion. She might be feeling the pressure to kind of make her move now, in other words. But ultimately, all that knowledge brings him is enough frustration and enough past shame about Taisha to physically, you know, to hit Shay. That's the, it make, makes him do that. And he's immediately very ashamed of it, but he did it. You know, Nina says that Shay is the inverse of Taisha. This is a great take. Taisha was exactly what she appeared to be a common girl who loved Tyrion for himself, but forced into a gang rape in a horrible form of prostitution. Shay is an actual sex worker who Tyrion wants to believe loves him for himself, but really is just caring for him as a client. Yeah, that's too bad. Tyrion's just so mixed up on these things, and that's all his upbringing for the most part. Here's another quote. This one's from Tyrion. I love this quote. At the warrior's altar, he used one candle to light another. Watch over my brother, you bloody bastard. He's one of yours. (laughs) He lit a second candle to the stranger for himself. (laughs) I like that. That's really funny. And particularly the way Roy Dotrice reads that. Watch over my brother, you bloody bastard. (laughs) He really gets into it. So the offer to promote Sir Jaslin, let's come back to that briefly. That's important because as good as Sir Jaslin has been to him, things are really coming to a head. So he really wants to make sure that Sir Jaslin sticks on his team because, well, as good as Sir Jaslin has been, that, you know, the other way to look at that is losing him would be really bad because he's been so valuable. I want to know what Varys was drugged with. I don't know, like what drug causes that effect where he can still feel what's happening but can't move because that's a, that's a nasty drug. It's like morphine. Yeah. Well, morphine does block pain at least, though. Still. Oh, yeah. I guess you could feel the pain. You're yeah, right. Can, that's, that's like, it's like it paralyzes you, but you can still feel everything. Like, yeah. That is terrifying. Sounds like uh, whatever. What are those uh, sleep, those night uh, sleep paralysis? Oh, yeah. I wonder if people like that could feel pain. Good point. Good point. Probably wake them up. So we'll end the talk of this chapter with a little quote from the World of Ice and Fire of all places. In the, in the Jade Compendium, Colloquio Votar recounts a curious legend from Yi Ti, which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, and that disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. 
Nice. And the reason that's important is the end of the chapter, Tyrion is lamenting his role as the twisted little monkey demon. And, well, we have long held the belief that the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail refers to Daenerys with Tyrion as his, her hand of the queen. So there you go. Mm. Catelyn Six. The one where winning is losing, a.k.a. the gang fights the Battle of Stone Mill. It's also the one with Tywin's fingering and fisting. Whoa there. What am I? What? Hey, not my words. Brienne's the one who says, these are, the, these are just the tips of his fingers brushing. And if he can't find a passage, he will curl those fingers into a fist. <laughs> hey, again, not my words. Yeah, that's not the best strategy. <laughs> Catelyn is ridden away from the South and also away from the supernatural, at least until Grey Wind returns with her son. For now, she is part of a fully human-only conflict where she is witness to a nasty series of battles that appear to be yet another in a long line of victories for the North and Riverlands Kingdom. But indeed, it's just another battle that won't lead to an overall win. And worse, this one actually backfires horribly. Quote, Tell father I've gone to make him proud. Yeah. Well, that gets us back into the old pride theme that's been hanging over us for quite a while. He couldn't be more direct than him admitting that's what he's looking to do. But also, it kind of gives you a sense of who Edmure is. A couple people pointed out that Catelyn's thoughts on Edmure are that, well, Edmure has long kind of been... A little bit uh, have a chip on his shoulder about maybe not thinking his father was proud of him. He maybe that he thinks of, you know, Catelyn has had some of that role of being, you know, she was his heir for a while and was treated as the heir until Edmure was born. And Edmure is still sort of in that shadow even now. He's the baby. He is the baby. (laughs) A few details from the battle. It's another new style of battle from a POV. Uh, Catelyn's seen battles before, but this is this is different. This is a contested river crossing. That's not something we've really seen. Well, we will see another during the Battle of the Blackwater, though the circumstances are pretty darn different. So the main difference, though, is that while we've had Kat watching before, this time she's uh, speaking to Brienne and Sir Desmond Grell, who explain parts of what's happening to her. And also, the Whispering Wood was her first, and her son was involved, and she was out in the open somewhat. So there was more riding on the outcome, and she was in greater danger herself, although she wasn't actually that worried. Still, fair to point that out. This time, it's not her first battle, not her first rodeo, <laughs> and it's her brother out there instead of her teenage son, and she's on the walls of a castle she was born in instead of kind of out in the open near this, in this forest. And this time, it would have been better if it lost instead of it being a really important battle uh, that they needed to win. The actual final battle is the Battle of Stone Mill, where Lord Lefford is killed, Strongbore is captured, although later he is freed. Gregor is actually driven back. Marbrand is driven back three times. Edmure gets all Gandalfy by saying they shall not cross. Uh, so many dead horses. It's really pretty brutal. Uh, the, the number of deaths. It's really nasty. Like she has less fear than in the in the Whispering Wood. She does have concerns. She wonders why she didn't see the sense in Edmure's plan when so many other lords did see the sense in it. But her doubt is paired with the fact that. These characters are explaining battle to her. So it creates this sense of Callan's not supposed to know what's the best option here. She's not experienced in battle. All these people around her are. But Kat's nagging doubts are correct. And they're the last part of the chapter. The chapter ends with those doubts. She's like, we're winning all these battles, but something isn't right. Indeed, something's not right. 
So let's talk about Ed Muir's blame or lack thereof, his role here, and whether he should have done this. Now, I'm of two minds, but mostly I'm on the side of blaming Ed Muir. Even though I like Ed Muir a lot, and I really respect that he's one of the very few lords to take care of his people, something we brought up earlier in this episode, super important. So he stands out as a really good guy amongst a lot of people who are uncaring or evil. Now, it's fair to say that even though Tywin or Edmure failed to consider the bigger picture, he didn't consider the whole Stannis versus Tywin angle of all this. And he really should have. So did all the Riverlords who approved his plan, though. None of them, at least not that we hear of, brought up, well, should we be considering the, the bigger picture? Really, it's Edmure just is about they shall not cross. He wants to pin Tywin between Harrenhal and uh, the Riverlands. And so he's also ordered Bruce Bolton to take Harrenhal, which he does. So Kat looks at a map at the end of this chapter and realizes where Tywin must be going. He's like, she thinks, well, now that he's been beaten, he must be, uh, they know that he's headed southeast. And she thinks, well, he must be at the headwaters of the Blackwater Rush by now. So that sentence, that thought there, that's telling us that Tywin's army is going to be at King's Landing in time for the Battle of Blackwater. So we're being told right here that Stannis' army is going to get contested when they try to take King's Landing. So this was probably our biggest clue. Uh, though she was right about the battle and, and the phrase. She still doesn't trust the phrase, even though Edmure is, gives effusive praise and lists off of a, a fairly long list of deeds that they, that they uh, accomplished. But she's still nervous about that. And... Uh, she definitely doesn't like the idea that Edmure pulled the, the garrison Rob left in the twins. She says, well, she makes the point that, yeah, okay, so you say they've been really loyal, but what if the fact they've been really loyal is partly due to the fact that we have men inside their castle <laughs> in addition to the hostages we have? So she makes the point that, look, Lord Walter's done a good job for us, but don't mistake that for loyalty. Mistake, you know, be, be realistic here. He's ambitious. That's really what's going on. She doesn't say that, but she's kind of thinking it. And we know that. It's, it's, it's a fact. It's, a, it's true. It's, it's, it's opinion, but it's also, it's really a fact. Because <laughs> it's just so true. She, on, uh, despite all this being right about all these other things, she's wrong about one important thing, it's, which is these, all these misplaced thoughts she has about Tyrion. She still thinks that he sent the killer after Bran. She thinks the dwarf is the worst of them. And this is sad because he clearly isn't. He's the best of them, even though... And this is, of course, because she's mistaken about what he did. Cersei is worse. Tywin is definitely worse. Come on, Joffrey. Joffrey's way worse. Let's, let's be real here. But she doesn't know Joffrey. And uh, she doesn't really even know Cersei that well, even though she has said she would love to go wrap her throats around, uh, neck, hands around her throat and strangle her. She, but somehow she thinks Tyrion's worse. So the singing theme continues here, along with Simon Silvertongue. And later, you know, we are, we're going to have uh, some other songs. Um, like Tyrion's thinking of uh, the songs associated with Taisha. This time we have Ryman the Rhymer and his song Wolf in the Night. And this touches on some of the rumors because Ryman's song calls for howling. And we have all these rumors out there that, that the army is, uh, that Rob is leading an army of wargs. We were quoting that in past episodes. And maybe this is part of where those rumors are coming from. If, if the Northern Army is actually howling after victory, even though it's just kind of part of a song and fun, other people are like, whoa, they're all howling. That's creepy as hell, man. <laughs> so that's interesting. Yeah, I see some, I see Jaded Redhead in the chat pointing out that it's Raymond. Yeah, Raymond. Yeah, Raymond the Rhymer. That's <laughs> yeah. going to be my rap name. <laughs> I'm Raymond the Rhymer, yo. 
couldn't come up with a rap, huh? Not on the rhyme. You're not rhyming the rhyme. (laughs) I'm not rhyming the rhymer or rhyming the rapper. I, yeah, I'm rhyming the rhymers. My rhyme could rhymes couldn't be flyer. Yeah. <laughs> nice. There you go. I'm not Christina. We need to get her in here. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder about that. I wonder if that's part of where that comes from. But the more important piece of songstress, songstress, song, songity. The more the more important tune here is the discussion between Brienne and Cat, where Brienne talks about how she loves songs, and and that becomes a point of uh, connection for them because Cat says, "Oh, Sansa loves songs too." And, well, maybe that's going to be a connection someday between Brienne and Sansa, love of songs, because I do think Brienne and Sansa are going to come together eventually, and this conversation may come back up. She may say, hey, I talked to your mother about this. And it also is a really interesting parallel, because Catelyn says, someday you must sing for me. And Brienne's like, no, I have no talent for singing. And she kind of walks off and is, is like kind of shy about it. Since we're tying that to Sansa, we can't help but think about Sandor, who also very recently was like, oh, I'm getting a song out of you. So I really wonder about that. This is, there's some, I think there's a connection here somewhere. So uh, I think that's pretty cool because I had not noticed that before. I had not thought to connect this Brienne cat moment to Sansa and Sandor. You Um, know, I wonder if there'll ever be a scene like in the show where everyone's singing for the battle. Ooh, that would be great. I hope so. Brienne sings. That would be really cool because she could, she could, if, if she's singing in a group, her, yeah. like the, her shame over her singing voice wouldn't matter as much. It's like a whole group singing. She wouldn't yeah. be heard. Yeah. A lot of people tend to speak up when, you know, when they're also, if you're drinking, <laughs> that helps. So in the uh, <clears throat> shadow of the philosophical conversations held by Tyrion and Varys and Stannis and Mel and Davos, Catelyn and Brienne get into some deep thoughts of their own, the nature of courage and death as it pertains to traditional Westerosi gender roles. And to talk about, woman's courage and you know how knights go off to fight in, in in bloody battle while women have the their battles are fought in the bloody birthing bed and uh it's it's pretty interesting the way this gets broken down and you wonder how this is going to play out later for brienne whether she's going to be knighted like she was in the show and uh just in general where this is all going to go i think it's pretty cool it's also stands in, in contrast to a lot of these other conversations because there's just so many conversations throughout the series about the nature of duty and it's usually framed as a masculine ideal. You know, the Night's Watch, the King's Guard, and just duty to your family and all these other things. Because the duty of so many women is to be sent off and start a new family, and to not be part of your old family. It's the men who are, stay within their own family because they keep their name, right? Uh, so they're brought up to be within their own house for life, whereas these women are brought up to eventually switch houses, which is just a totally different cultural attitude it's a very it's a pretty big split in gender roles uh, you know obviously there's big splits in westerosi gender roles but the, but some of these things are less apparent than others but still it's really interesting how it's brought up that it's it's a courage it's still a form of courage to to deal with a lot of these issues even though westeros doesn't respect them as much as it respects you know warriors uh but but brienne clearly respects that as a woman herself she has a better understanding and more regard for such things from Catelyn. And that builds a lot of mutual respect between them. Another important point here is Roos's letter here comes in this, in this, uh, during this chapter. Does he know Ramsey is actually alive? He, he's like, oh, well, my son is dead. And I think he thinks Ramsey is dead. He just finds out later because Ramsey's disguise was a spur of the moment decision. He's being chased by Northerners and he's like, I'm going to pretend to be Reek. I seriously thought that was planned in advance and Roos knew about that. But clearly, Roos learns at some point. Maybe we'll later we'll find we'll figure out where this point comes. 
Whether he knew or not, though, he's definitely not lying when he says the line, any new sons, my fray bride will bear me, will be in danger from Ramsey. Because, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Roos is a liar, but he's not lying about that one. It could be soon, too. Roos and Ramsey are seen to be arguing by Theon late in the Dance with Dragons. And uh, Walda, who is pregnant, is standing right there crying. And, well, there's also what happened on TV, which makes it very clear if that's indeed what's going to happen. Also, we have Cleos here. He, uh, Catelyn gets him drunk, and it works pretty well. So, well, she uses it later again on Jamie. <laughs> so, Joe says, here it is in part eight, the act that ultimately changes the fates of all Westeros. King's Landing, Stannis, the Northern Cause, all their futures swirl around Edmure doing what anyone else would do, protect their home. Okay, so this is why I waited to weigh in more uh, thoroughly on whether Edmure was at fault here or not, because I wanted to let Joe give this take here. And the reason I think that Edmure went too far is that, yeah, Joe makes a strong point that he's doing what people would do and protect their home. And that is certainly an attitude Edmure has already displayed. He's already shown that it's important to him. However, he was ordered to hold River Run and do nothing else. This is clearly a lot more than nothing else. He was so he wasn't specifically ordered not to do this, but he was told to do nothing else. So I, I think I quibble with people who say Rob wasn't clear enough. I think maybe Rob could have been clearer, but hold the, you know, just hold River Run is pretty clear. <laughs> maybe it would have been better to say let Tywin pass, but do nothing is pretty much what he was told to do. And he did way more than nothing. He set up a line of defense in like 12 spots along the fords. Like he was, this was an extremely thorough organized defense like this was way way beyond what he was told not to do so people who want to argue that rob should have been more clear i feel you i do feel you i think that's true i think rob maybe should have been more clear but i still put more blame on ed muir because he was told not to do something that he did just because he didn't know why isn't a good excuse he was given an order didn't follow it i think it's a lot simpler than a lot of people make it out to be even though i don't make it entirely simple. anyway Joe also points out that there's a, a nice little parallel here. It used to be Sir Roderick telling her about battles and knowledge on our um, tactics and things like that. Not only do we have Brienne filling that role now, but we have Sir Desmond, who is Castellan of uh, River Run. So it's like Sir Roderick was Castellan, the old Castellan, and now we have uh, another old Castellan. Joe throws a little shade on Tywin. He says, just because I like the failing Tywin stuff, the details of Lannister's falling before Tully River Fair, the heavy casualties the Lannister's take, it all makes for fun reading. Not only does it make for fun reading, it makes me think of what the battles will be like in the future, meaning the battles against the dead, especially because a lot of battles will probably take place in the Riverlands, especially if we believe, like I've said earlier in this episode, that Harrenhal will be where the final battle maybe takes place, in the Riverlands, which means yeah. they'll probably be skirmishing in the Riverlands before they get to Harrenhal, which means maybe trying to hold some river crossings against the dead. Yeah, I think we'll see some more battles that are satisfying like this. Yeah. Before we get to the more devastating battles. I think you're probably right. And like, for example, I feel like the Battle of Ice is one mm. that is set up to be one where like people are like, yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> you're, I think it's a really good point. Also, it, it brings us even closer to the undead because it's, it's, it's fighting in amongst like the ice yeah. and uh, the snow. Where, but to be fair, this battle is fought at night, which is also kind of mm -hmm. along those same lines. And of course, there's a lot of other things that make me think of future battles against the dead. 
first of all, the, the idea that Tywin is just sending his spending his troops like coins, like sending them in the really dangerous situations where they have to go through water and then up an embankment against men who are just waiting to take them down and shooting arrows at them and crossbows and and ballistas from the walls. It's really awful. Uh, and, and we could at least maybe imagine that it'll be similar for that instead of these humans crossing the water and into certain death, it'll be the undead and it'll be the humans on the, the high banks. And one of the other things that really come up here is the, the Malister bowmen are really key in, the, in these battles. We see them shooting a lot of fire arrows. And that too is a little foreshadowy in terms of the battle because fire arrows are clearly going to be important in fighting the undead. And uh, they, they're so evocative here because the battle happens at night with all these huge arcing bow shots of many flights of flaming arrows. And that's just a, it's a really, it really paints a picture. But imagine them be, the, the targets being the undead instead and them just like crawling over each other. We, I mean, we saw the Dothraki with their flaming rocks too. Oh yeah, good point. And, and Kat mentions like, she thinks about how there's these piles of bodies and, and the clogged up, there's so many dead horses and things like that. Well, the, the think, imagine that with the dead. They're crawling over. They would crawl over each other and make like bridges of bodies. We've had a bridge of boats coming up later in the Blackwater, but we might have uh, just the undead walking over each other because, <laughs> you know, that's how they do. Cat sees men floating down the river, which reminds me of the Tully funeral customs. And Cat thinks of herself as dead at the same time because Ned is gone. And, you know, well, she hasn't even gotten the news about Brandon Rickon yet. And how she kind of thinks of, and if, well, we kind of think of her as coming to, back to life later, because, well, sort of, it's, it's undead isn't fully alive. And that's also going to take place on the trident. So only on a different fork of the trident here. A lot of things wrapped up in, in her thoughts of death there and how it relates to her and soon her father before her. So there's infinite awful things to say about war and battle, but this one particularly strikes me, the, the bits about um, what I was saying earlier about the Lannister soldiers. It's just, but again, <laughs> it also makes me smile because it sets up the uh, fighting the undead in the black of night, like the long night. And like one of our first explanations of this or not explanations, examples of this is coming up at the beginning of the next book with the battle, the, the fight at the fist of the first men. Uh, here's a little quote that Archmaester Rennie grabbed. The men on the walls shouted taunts after them, though they were already too far off to hear. So, the, the question is, is this a Monty Python reference? <laughs> Shouting tots on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I will taunt you a second time. <laughs> and there's definitely a point at which they're taunting and you can't hear what they're saying because they're so far off. They're just laughing and going, you know, so I, yeah, I, I could think be. Definitely. I think that's it. George is George likes Monty Python. So also we have maybe uh, a nod to Igrit because John's next chapter is mm. going to be Igrit showing up for the first time. And right here we have Sir Cleo stared. I know nothing of any... You know nothing, she agreed, sweeping from the Yeah, you know nothing. Catelyn also makes a statement that just really has a lot of uh, relevance to the real world. As hard as birth is, what comes after is much harder. Yeah, uh, that afterbirth. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> okay. She goes gross. Especially if it's a shadow baby. Like, whoa! <laughs> Actually, that's easy. Just let it go. It does its thing and then you're done. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's so true. Catelyn's talking. This is this, of course, comes up during the talk with Catelyn and Brienne and about, you know, all the difficulties that women face. And yeah, raising children is really hard. And in this world, it's harder because there's so many more dangers than there are in our world. 
Catelyn thinks on John's mother, interestingly enough. We actually get a mention of Ashara Dane in this chapter and because she's thinking about how the different ways that men treat their bastards and how wide a range of, of treatment those bastards get um, from their fathers and sometimes their mothers. She's mostly thinking about fathers in this case. She thinks that some will fiercely defend them while others will just throw them off, you know, like ignore them or cast them aside like Bruce Bolton. So it's interesting that she thinks of someone who just cast their bastard aside, Bruce Bolton, when Ramsey is actually his, where she also thinks of people who were, you know, very steadfast in defending a bastard. And she thinks of Ned and Courtney Penrose. But in that case, the bastard isn't theirs. (laughs) So it's kind of a little inverse there. Okay, that is all I have for Catelyn 6. A very, uh, another sad but interesting chapter because Catelyn is, it's all the, the pall of, of her losses and it's just going to get worse because the losses are going to mount. Her father is going to die next book. She's going to think Bran and Rickon are dead. I think it's her next chapter. Um, but that won't be next week. But what will be next week is Bran 6, the one with Stranger Danger, a.k.a. Psycho Theon is back. I didn't notice he went with that one for that. Damn, I'm disappointed. Oh. It should have been Psycho Euron is back. He's the one who actually comes real back. Well, we could still do that. Okay, it could okay. be both. I'm just making sure I like <laughs> I had that plan locked in the chamber for many years from now. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it. Okay. Okay. Arya 9. The gang makes Weasel Soup, a.k.a. the one with Arya's new coin. Daenerys 4. The gang gets Undying, a.k.a. the one with all the threes. Tyrion 11. The gang solves the wildfire crisis, a.k.a. the one where the clans swap Vale for Kingswood. Theon 4, the one where Theon might be a Kingslayer, Kinslayer, a.k.a. Summer and Shaggy, decoy direwolf duo. And finally, John 6, the one where John kills Aurel, a.k.a. the one where John doesn't kill Egret. <laughs> Thanks for that. Ashea and I thank all of you who came to watch live, all of you who listened or watched afterwards, everyone who leaves uh, iTunes review or supports us on Patreon or tells your friends and likes and shares. All those things matter. We appreciate them all. And you'd be surprised how much some of those things matter. Thanks also to Michael Clarfeld, to Kevin McLeod, to Joey Townsend, to Jesse Kowal, to Joe Buckley. Make sure you check out Isle of Faces. That's his podcast. A lot of these chapters get deeper dives on his topics called Scraps and Scrolls. Big shout out to the History of Westeros mods. I get to shout them out in a variety of ways because sometimes I'll use their real names, but today I'll use their Patreon names because, hey, all of them are patrons. How cool is that? Rebea, Laura Boros, Emma Helminth, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Lady Lajara Dajo, and last but not least, Kohol Koei. Shout out to Kohol Koei, whose real name is Jennifer Taylor. Shout out to her new podcast called Vanished. That's a Sleepy Hollow podcast, and Ashay and I did some voice work for it. Yeah, so, I was Katrina Von yeah, I was Brom Bones. Yeah, you were. That was pretty fun. So yeah, check that out if you're if that's uh, you know your kind of thing. They did a good job, and it's just getting started. They've only got a, what a couple episodes out. So mm-hmm. anyway, also thanks to some of our most prolific commenters, Nina Friel. Um, is our most prolific Facebook commenter, and she's done such a great job of adding so much to these uh, discussions, as well as helping us out with some of the timestamps. Tree Girl and Stefan B and Archmaster Rennie, along with others, are getting shouted out a lot for their comments on Flick. So if you uh, want to join on either of those um, social media spots to join the discussion, get to it and join the discussion. Have fun. If not, 
Just keep coming back to the episodes. We'll see you then. Until then. Join Stephen Stark for The Expanse. Oh, yeah. Stephen Stark's covering season three of The Expanse right after this. Yeah, nine minutes or, you know, so. Yeah. Also, um, I was on supposed to be on his show last week. We advertised that I would be on I Know That Nerd, but there were major technical issues. So we rescheduled for December 8th. So check that out when it happens. And we'll see you then. Until then. Until next week. Until I Know That Nerd. Until until I interrupt you again. Until <laughs> I was going to say, until you appear on Maester Crescent's uh, pro- prologue uh, trivia. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next time. And you know what to do. Valar, reread us.